welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of those sites and podcasts on the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you take a look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. A journey this time that goes on an epic scope of one of the biggest and most distinctive auteurs in film history, Robert Altman. Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And... This journey is so vast that we're not going to get into all of Altman this time. We're going to move in from his earliest works out towards his legendary studio classic, Popeye. (laughs) And joining us for part one of this journey is a fellow member of the Now Playing Network on his podcast, Supporting Characters. He looks at the world of the underappreciated, underseen, and undernoticed part of movie making, where he has done interviews with film promoters, film critics, writers, and has recently scored an epic discussion with filmmaker William Lustig, director of Maniac. He's also been featured by having written intros on DVDs. He has recorded a commentary track on Arrow Video's most recent release of Last House on the Left, and he has another podcast on the way. And I have to note that he has also appeared several times on the Directors Club in the past, most notably for me personally on a wonderful discussion on the works of Adam Goyen. It is my supreme pleasure to welcome in Bill Ackerman back to the Directors Club. Howdy, Bill. Thank you so much for having me back. This is my first time talking with both of you. Yes, your first uh, Brad interaction, yeah. yeah. It's true, and uh, as Al said, we are honored. This should be a really fun discussion. I'm, I'm excited to do it. Yeah, I've, I've never had a, a podcast appear and talk about Robert Altman before, and he's a director that's important to me, so this should be fun. Right, and while that's true of all of us, we do want to point out that there has been a previous Directors Club podcast on Robert Altman. Back in the archives, Jim and Patrick did a really insightful and in-depth look on this director. Patrick, in particular, has said that he's one of his favorite directors, and so I'd urge all of you to check out that earlier episode as well as this one. And so we are referring to our current episode as Robert Altman Redux. (laughs) Right. We're going to include a 30-minute discussion about a plantation. (laughs) (laughs) So why are we doing it twice? And this is kind of where I got to raise my hand and say, uh, guilty. I'm taking one of the perks of being a co-host here and saying that, well, I wasn't here when they did my favorite director, Robert Altman. So can we go ahead and do it again and uh, give our own patented touch to this and i appreciate everybody's willingness to revisit this great director who also directed my favorite movie nashville i I could not be more excited to talk about robert altman what was your first altman brad well it was mash and like a lot of people i uh who are 
younger than a certain age, I came into the movie through the TV series and saw how very different it was and came to love both of them despite, uh, despite their differences. From then on, it was one after another after I realized what an amazing director this is. Very few directors, I think, express the joy of filmmaking like Robert Altman does. He's very distinct, he's, he's experimental, he's audacious, but at the same time, you get what uh, Orson Welles called this idea of uh, filmmaking being uh, the greatest toy train set a boy ever had. Altman plays with so many elements of film, makes them his own, but unlike a lot of other great art house directors, for me, they're, they're, they're always incredibly enjoyable and entertaining as well as stimulating. Now, that particular level of enthusiasm that you see just coming off the screen, I have a very distinct, different impression, but then I had a quite different gateway into Altman because my first Altman was Popeye. <laughs> when I saw, and when I saw Popeye, I was pretty surprised by how much I was into it. I was quite taken by how melancholy, which is not necessarily a feeling when I was expecting to watch a Popeye cartoon, to say the least. And then the second one I saw was Nashville, which I didn't get the first two times I saw him. <laughs> It takes a little going for, uh, for that, but it was something that I'd never seen before and is such an epic mission statement, even if I couldn't quite make sense of it the first time. And Bill, how about you? How did uh, you get into Robert Altman? Um, so I first started with Popeye as a kid. I, it was one of the only movies I had on video cassette when I was growing up. Um, so that's probably the one I've seen the most number of times, although not that often in my adult life. But then I think maybe the player and shortcuts on video were where I started really thinking about Altman as a filmmaker. And then maybe around the time of Kansas City is when I started catching them all in the theater. And I don't remember at what in what order I started watching the 70s films, but it was probably... Around the time of Easy Riders Raging Bulls, the the Peter Biskin book is what really ah. kind of fed my. Like I'd already seen a few of the, of the major uh, Touchstone New Hollywood classics, but I think that's probably around the point when I started getting deeper into films that weren't as iconic as the Taxi Driver, Godfather, Jaws type films. So I started watching the '70s films all on VHS, either uh, legit releases like Nashville, The Long Goodbye, or McCabe, Mrs. Miller, uh, or bootlegs from uh, that come from stray. Uh, Cable airings, which is how I saw Three Women and Images. Uh, what the VHS versions all had in common was that even though all the films were great, they all looked like shit because they were all badly cropped from a 235 widescreen composition to fit the the, uh, the square aspect ratio. I think Thieves Like Us was the only one because it wasn't shot quite so wide that wasn't uh, a series of, of cramped compositions and awkward panning back and forth. Wow. <laughs> so, I, cause, so these films all had to kind of transcend these really awful presentations, which they did. I remember being so exhilarated when I finally caught up with Nashville. It was just a, um, 
remember I watched half of it before going to work and it's such a long film I had to wait until uh, I got home from work to watch the other videotape of the two tape set that it came in California Split was actually the first and only one of his 70s films shot that wide that I saw for the first time in widescreen because I didn't see it until the DVD came out for that one I couldn't find a bootleg for me Altman I don't know if I really rank directors in terms of favorites so much. I mean, I guess my sentimental favorite is David Lynch because he was the director that got me into directors. But in terms of the um, the sheer number of great films, I'm trying to think if there's another American filmmaker with more uh, than Robert Altman, like maybe Howard Hawks. But those two, they fit together in my mind as the two that have the most great films and just the, the variety of types of films. Altman goes all over the world and all over the different genres. And that, in that respect, he reminds me more of Hawks because he takes different existing genres and makes them his own. And they also have that same affinity for overlapping dialogue, although have, they have very different approaches to that. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to say that neither of which qualify for having just three good movies and no bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> for the famous Hawks quote. And even with, with my love of Altman, there, there are a few films that we're going to discuss that I don't love, but it's because he's so experimental, some of these experiments are going to fail. But Bill, you mentioned a, a couple things that are very present in almost all Altman films, and I, I think it's kind of fascinating that as we go through these films, to look at these touches that make them so personal throughout his filmography. So you mentioned genre deconstruction. When he does a Western, he does an anti-Western. He, he breaks the rules. He does it strangely. Same with his noir. Same with his musical. They're all perverse in a lot of ways by breaking the rules of those genres. Overlapping dialogue is not something he invented, but it's absolutely something that he used, I think, to greater effect than any other director and really has spent his career trying to, or at least in the 70s, perfecting this idea that things that happen on the sides of the screen that you aren't necessarily focused on are as important to watch as what your leads are doing and what the main dialogue is saying. So he has taken this idea and brought it to sound. A couple other ones is his very deliberate use of the pan and the zoom. You see, especially with the zoom, you'll often see the camera move in towards a character in a very deliberate way that calls attention to itself. But you can also tell it's never an accident. Altman is always doing that to make a very distinctive point. Probably the most distinctive thing about Altman as a director is is how he relates to actors throughout his filmography. Many of the great directors like Hitchcock and Kubrick are these visual masters, but they kind of view actors as a means to an end. Altman, on the other hand, lets the actors drive the films through improvisations, through sharing of ideas, He loves working with actors probably as much as any other aspect of filmmaking, but unlike a lot of other directors who are very particularly into improvisation, he also has this tremendous visual flair. 
And finally, there's a really cool thing he does, mostly in his early films. He eventually stopped. But he has these connecting cues in most of the films we're going to talk about today. Little audio or visual things that will appear throughout the film briefly, almost as chapter breaks. And as, as we get into the films themselves, we'll talk about what those are. But before this distinctive style came to us, unlike a lot of the other new Hollywood directors of the 70s, the Martin Scorsese's, the Steven Spielberg's, the Francis Ford Coppola's, Altman had actually been working quite a lot in film and television before that. So, Bill, I understand you got a chance to see a few of his earlier stuff, and we were wondering kind of what are your impressions on pre-Altman Altman? Well, it's interesting because he had a very long career prior to, I guess, his filmmaking. Feature films really start happening in quick succession around the time of of Countdown. But he had a previous feature, uh, The Delinquents, from 1957. Before that, he had been directing industrials for the Calvin Company, documentaries and uh, promo films. And this is where he really developed his chops as a filmmaker in terms of developing a uh, an appreciation for nonlinear storytelling or overlapping dialogue. He had already gone to Hollywood before that. Like he was a uh, a former Air Force pilot. He had flown in World War II and after that he had served um after serving in the military, he had gone to Hollywood as a screenwriter. He, feud- he wrote a few uh, kind of noir things like Bodyguard, this Lawrence Tierney film. Um, he's even an extra in the uh, the Danny Kaye movie, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, sitting at the bar. If you look for him, you can find him in a shot. But he uh, he couldn't really make a, a Hollywood career happen. Uh, he didn't have the, uh, the connections. It's just something wasn't working for him there. So he went back to Kansas City and was directing for the Calvin Company. His first film that we know of is a documentary about the rules of football uh, called Modern football. You can actually find this on YouTube. I don't know whether or not this was something he was replaying for himself as he prepared for MASH or not, but <laughs> he gets into the ins and outs of football. Um, his TV work, the big one, well, this too, there's an episode of Bus Stop, which was this thriller show, and there's an episode he did called A Lion Walks Among Us, uh, which starred the, the teen idol Fabian as a young drifter who murders a shopkeeper. He's put on trial, but uh, ultimately gets off. It's kind of got a right-wingish kind of message, you know, the, the courts can't really handle these kind of monsters and it has a you know kind of a downbeat ending but the violence in it was so strong that it actually led to a congressional committee investigating the effect of sex and violence on tv the show got canceled and the president of abc got fired so it was like a really big impact episode of television and that is one of the uh, hallmarks of his early career he was somebody that broke rules and created a ruckus on television another noteworthy thing he directed for tv was an episode of combat which is a show that he was all over i mean combat is as much an altman show as Twin Peaks is a Lynch show. He's directing or co-writing a lot of episodes on it. It reflects his sensibilities as far as like a kind of gritty realism. And it's interesting because his breakthrough would be MASH, which kind of subverts the conventions of the war story. But this showed that he had a real mastery for doing the kind of thing that you'd expect from Hawks or Ford or Peckinpah. Like he had that same degree of control and tense storytelling. Conventional authority figures are the good guys in a lot of these. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're talking about cops, we're talking about soldiers, we're talking about authority figures not 
being ridiculed. And when you get to Countdown, 1966, the second feature, it's about astronauts, it's about NASA, and it's about trying to beat the Russians to the moon. It's uh, Robert Duvall and James Kahn. There's not that cynicism and that judgment of authority that you might associate with him from MASH onward. Like there's still a sense of him working within the system and his rebel side is just behind the scenes as far as trying to find ways to to push the form. The films don't necessarily reflect that rebel tendency until we get to MASH. The only other one before MASH is That Cold Day in the Park, and that's Sandy Dennis as a uh, spinster who invites a young hippie boy in from the cold and then treats him almost like a pet, but also a potential lover. It's a kept man narrative. Many people read it now as the first step into the territory of images and three women, those neurotic, lonely women stories contending with strange intruders. But it's less experimental in the presentation than those films. So if you like things that are like those neurotic thrillers of the late 60s, it's the first one that feels like you could connect it to later Altman films, but those very specific ones like Images and Three Women, which weren't heralded in their day. I want to touch in just briefly on the that day in the park. Yes. In the film, he does several interesting things about undercutting conventional notions of propriety especially like the attitudes of upper middle class people towards other groups, like what's thought to be like an act of charity seems to have a lot of other motivations going on to say the least. (laughs) And the fact that the kept guy is mute and then he's put in different states of dress and undress. And especially since he finds himself lost when he is back uh, reunited with his group of usual friends leads me to almost make it, interesting in a reverse vertigo kind of way she is trying to remake this guy or make this guy into and he is reacting to that out of his own needs in a way that's pretty uh interesting counterpoint to uh, hitchcock's classic film and so i do like some of the counterpoints against authority that was touched on in in a conceptual way in that cold day in the park but obviously the countercultural sentiment It reaches full flower in his breakthrough film, MASH, or more appropriately, M asterisk A asterisk S asterisk H in 1970. Through early morning fog I see visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me. I realize and I can see that suicide is painless. It brings on many changes and I can take or leave it if I please. This film takes place at the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital during the Korean War as we follow Donald Sutherland as Hawkeye Pierce and Elliot Gould as Trapper John McIntyre, two brilliant doctors who, along with their cohorts, cope with the pressures of wartime surgery with a constant barrage of pranks, disdain for authority, womanizing, and alcohol. Well, we talked about genre deconstruction, and this is a two-for-one. MASH not only deconstructs the war movie, but it deconstructs the comedy. An incredibly funny movie, but it has such a potent edge to it because all the antics, all the the, the jokes, the bad taste 
are contrasted with these brutal, gory films of surgery and seeing these doctors with their arms covered in blood and and the, the patients suffering in this setting. So Altman, who means this Korean War setting very much to represent Vietnam, is making an anti-war statement, but in a way that's so different than movies before this has. Its use of humor might be compared to the way Kubrick used humor in Dr. Strangelove as a contrast to that movie's serious themes. Or maybe even Full Metal Jacket, Mm -hmm. because so much of the comedy is based upon abuse and abuse of who has authority and who has control, like the first half of Full Metal Jacket. Right. But for a war movie... There are no scenes of combat. There are no scenes of war. What we're seeing is the results of war, these, these horribly damaged human bodies. And then that's contrasted with this potent humor that's utilized throughout. One quick note I want to point out about that has come up from what you're saying, Brad, about MASH and Bill to what you were saying about how he was providing a visceral impact on violence. It's an interesting facet to Alma that I literally did not even consider until you guys brought that up. It does feature quite a bit in many of his other films in a way that evokes um, some modern filmmakers. Like, I would liken it to how, say, Ben Wheatley, the director of, of Kill List and the um, recent uh, High Rise and how Jeremy Saulnier, Saulnier, I think that's how you pronounce it, of <laughs> director of Blue Ruin and Green Room, they do violence and it such, gives such a gigantic visceral impact because you completely feel how, how brutal that is. Yes, Bill? Well, I would actually compare him to Peckinpah. I, in a lot of ways, he has a lot in common with Sam Peckinpah. I mean, the, the lyricism, the love of boozy camaraderie between men, the eruptions of violence, even slow motion violence sometimes. I mean, you look at the bottle smashing scene in uh, The Long Goodbye is a good example of the kind of thing that Peckinpah would have done. The romance of the Western and even of outlaws sometimes. I mean, it feels like they both are these war vet, TV trained renegades that were comfortable the most comfortable when the studios were nervous about them like they were they were not built for they were built for new hollywood they weren't built for the 80s they were exceptions in the new hollywood in that they were older and more experienced but they knew exactly what those freedoms in terms of screen freedom meant and they pushed it further than maybe a bogdanovich or somebody would have because you know those guys were just happy to be making movies <laughs> whereas people like peckinpah and altman were cynical old vets at that point they saw an opportunity to go further than what ford and hawks did you know in in terms of genre i mean with mash i was thinking about like why why is mash the blockbuster and then everything else until the player maybe nashville accepted and popeye accepted is a cult film why did this one resonate so deeply to, to such a degree that it was the check that paid for the rest of the new hollywood career of altman and i was thinking about how it taps into that anti-Vietnam sentiment, it was definitely the most successful 
anti-war type film in a way that student protest type films that you know never really kind of caught on with the the larger public but it's also a forerunner to the slobs versus snobs comedies of harold ramus yes. uh as far as the sexual embarrassment prank stuff and i feel like that's the part that ages weirdly now because this film does get called out in some corners is it a misogynistic film is the treatment of hot lips too much is it does it take too much delight in embarrassing women we and we can talk about whether that is or not true and also this is the first film well one of the first films to use the word fuck in the dialogue i think ulysses came first it's one of the first ones to make fun of religious piety Mm -hmm. like there's there's a lot of sacred cows being set alight in this uh but it's also the sardonic tone it's interesting because you don't think that the the Vietnam generation would go to a war movie, even a war comedy. Like so, the way that it captured the larger imagination of the public, it's it's. I don't look at it and think easily. This is this is the blockbuster that spawns a hit TV show that makes a fortune for Fox and sets up Altman for the rest of his life in some respects. Hmm. Well, I think you may have hit on it with uh, your comparison to the the Ramis films that would come in later in the 70s Animal House and uh, and the like Caddyshack Caddyshack yeah. um because this really is the first example I could think of where that kind of youth revolt is as uh potent as it ended up being and and I think looking at when it came out in 1970 and the height of the Vietnam War and also the height of the protest movement stateside, Easy Rider had been a hit the year before. And so I think the combination of its counterculture credentials and also its success as a pure comedy for those who don't want to look deeper into it probably was very attractive to audiences at the time. I think that its appeal was that it arrived at exactly the right time to make sort of a very youth-based feeling of enthusiasm towards their own concerns and the complete disdain for these authorities and these expected ways to behave that had let people down in the culture up to that point. The it taps into the ultimate idea of the snobs versus slobs concept in a way that I think is kind of primal because they're not really making an explicit criticism of the war because the war could be done for entirely righteous reasons and yet still result in uh, mangled bodies that need to be addressed by the staff. So that's not really made explicit but what is explicit is how this rambunctious enthusiasm towards making fun out of people on a individual basis you know th- this may have also predicted another pop culture phenomenon seinfeld because <laughs> like the show right? like the show we are following protagonists who are pretty horrible yeah these pranks that that go on uh, throughout are mean-spirited and nasty. I mean that's part of what makes them funny. But all but there, there there's no doubt that the characters we're being asked to follow are are doing so, some horrible things and I think Altman is trying to 
make an anti-war statement there in saying that this is your trade-off. If you're going to find somebody who can stick their arms and bloody bodies and save lives in a wartime setting like this, to let off steam, they might end up lashing out in other ways. And I think it's interesting, Bill, you mentioned the the misogyny debate, because I think one of two things is true about MASH. It it is either either a misogynist film or it is about misogyny. Mm. Okay. Which way would you call MASH? Uh, I'm going to say it's about misogyny. And, And the reason for that is because... It is so prevalent and omnipresent in the way MASH is filmed. Every single female character is objectified, is sexualized, is looked at in a way that is as the other by our leads. We've seen through Altman's career that he is going to take female points of view very often we also are gonna look forward in in nashville to another scene where somebody is forced to strip and is humiliated in some of the same ways that hot lips is here let's look at the shower scene the most infamous kind of example of misogyny in the film that could have been filmed for titillation you could have seen the nudity You could have dwelled on it, uh, but what Altman does is amps up kind of the humiliating aspect of it. We don't see a standard exploitation scene here. She hits the deck immediately and is horrified, and the way that it's filmed, we're horrified at what she's going through, even as the other characters take delight in it. And men and women take delight in it, too, if memory serves. Right. Um, yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's horrified. What it is doing is it's isolating her. When she is, uh, when the shower stall falls over, it's done in a very distant shot mm-hmm. to show how alone she is. And this, I think, is key to how I think Altman is approaching it, is not that it is an anti-war. It's a punk-assed version of the soldiering process. Hmm. Let's look at what it takes to be a soldier is through this very regimented training, your individual needs and wants get completely subordinated to the mission. But Hawkeye and Trapper John, to me, are the drill sergeants. But they're drill sergeants informed by hippie counterculture. Hmm. But they're going to go through the uh, different kind of abuse that what Arlie Emery was trafficking in. They're going to mold this environment to be in their image. Hot Lips' is, quote-unquote problem is that she is the individual nail who will not conform to the freewheeling uh, sexual hijinks that are going on. So she needs to be corrected by getting her own version of the blanket party (laughs) to where charges of misogyny get a little more um, traction because she's now much more accepted by the group 
all of her stuck-up attitude has now been abused out of her. Well, kind of accepted. Even when we get to the football game at the end, and she's doing uh, the cheerleader bit and is, is trying to be part of the group, she's still insulted and called names throughout that sequence as well. Yeah, that's true, but she is tolerated right. <laughs> in a way that people who have, say, religious views, such as Robert Duvall's Burns character, are not. Those guys got to be literally knocked out of the picture if a Trapper John had anything to do with it. When you think of, like, well, if the hippies take over a war environment, you think it's going to be all peace and love, man, and stuff like that. But what I think Altman's showing in MASH is that, like, if those guys are in charge... They're going to go and try and run things their way in a bizarre twist on like how the military would order things. I can see that. Now, to go to another thing that MASH did remarkably was that MASH was an announcement of the Altman style. As refreshing as, like, say, the Beatles were when they were appearing on Ed Sullivan's show was the visual sense that Altman brought to MASH. Because when you watch these images... Altman very rarely gives you an emphasis on what you need to focus on. To Brad's point about how deliberately he's moving the camera, he's doing it deliberately so you don't have something to explicitly focus on. There's a really fun study that was a psychological study that demonstrates the uh, human ability called focusing attention. It shows that how when you're focusing on one thing, you can go exclude all sorts of other details, just, just don't register in your memory. And a lot of filmmaking, a lot of even exceptional filmmaking, works on that same level. When you get a film that's really running on all cylinders, that has a full sense of composure, like a, like a Kubrick or a P.T. Anderson film, every element is drawn in for you to focus in on the story. And what I think that Altman had announced with MASH to full effect was he does the sort of antidote to that. <laughs> He's always negating that sense that you should just focus on this character or this part of the frame or this action. By continually undercutting, suddenly you're made aware of everything that's going on. And so you get this very interesting effect of understanding that all these individuals are, try are not some unified community, but they're all disparate and they're all trying to make things work in this very harsh condition. One thing that kind of makes this stand apart or makes McCabe Mrs. Miller stand apart from other Westerns is you feel the dirtiness. The environment feels real. It doesn't feel like a set. It doesn't feel like an artificial movie world. It feels like real life. I mean, famously, Tora, Tora, Tora and Patton were also shooting around the time of MASH and they got all the, uh, the, the initial attention from the Fox brass. But then when they were looking at the rushes from MASH, they were like, oh, your other films look too clean, like dirty up those uniforms. I think that the overlapping dialogue technique and the the wandering camera, like all these things, I think are meant to try to feel like you're capturing stolen real moments rather than people reading a script and reciting lines. Like even when there is a script, he's always trying to give you the illusion that everything is being improvised the way that the off-the-cuff one-liners are. I mean, you mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson earlier, 
early Anderson films are very indebted to Altman in superficial ways, but they are assured composed Kubrickian approximations of what Altman did. Like they are, they, you know what I mean? Like they are, yes. they are wandering, but it's written. It's a written by script. There's probably not a lot of improvisation going on. It's read my words. The camera will be here and then here and then here. There's not that sense that Paul Thomas Anderson's ever exploring the room, not knowing what he's looking for. Right. Whereas Altman, you feel like maybe the grace notes are, gonna come in the corner of the room from non-lead characters and like the, you know there'll be some interaction and that will be the one-liner that you cut on that's always what i think about with altman if there's a uh, a cliche or a stylistic tick he does it's like that wandering and then cutting on the joke right. you know and that's something that mashes really where it starts but it's something that carries over through most of the films and the uh that makes it feel very alive because you feel like it's not a rehearsed thing even though it most assuredly is still actors acting with a script and hitting marks and so forth but it it has the illusion of of a documentary quality i mean it, you, you we could compare him to someone like cassavetes there's not necessarily a lot of people making up dialogue on the spot the improvisations working things out gives it a looser quality that even though i think sometimes altman was a little bit cruel in how little he gave screenwriters any sense of possessory credit like that he he took real liberties but he still appreciated a good script and retained the best parts he just embellished when he felt like that's what he needed to do which is something that hawks did too but hawks was rewriting on the set and then giving them new lines so it had that same kind of freshness but not that sense of seemingly chaos and then picking the nuggets out of chaos and what you were saying about the treatment of writers is very true in mash in particular because Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote the script, had most of the script thrown away by Altman's uh, favoring improvisation, yet he won the Oscar for uh, Best Writing for MASH and always had kind of mixed, mixed feelings about that. The announcements over the loudspeaker is another thing we should touch on because that's a trait that carries over into the radio broadcasts in Thieves Like Us or the uh, Hal Philip Walker Mm -hmm. campaign truck in Nashville that that need to have an oral collage to fill the air. I think he had said that like old radio shows were some of his initial influences for storytelling. And I think that love of old time radio maybe informs that trope that you see in a lot of these films. Well, the loudspeaker is that sense of, of bracketing structure that Brad had pointed out earlier, that it's almost like it's a palate cleanser to say, okay, here's the next uh, quote-unquote episode of what these guys are, adventures that these guys are going to do. Yeah, it's the, it's the first of these connecting cues, and it was actually an accident. It was, huh. This was not in the script. This was not part of the plan as they were filming. But Altman felt that something was missing as he was editing into the final cut. And then somebody came up with the idea of utilizing these loudspeakers as kind of an off-screen narrator and even taking transcripts from uh, wartime uh, announcements that hospitals like the, the 4077th used. So... Yes, this is not the last time we're going to see these uh, elements. It's also fascinating on the loudspeaker, Brad, that Altman does, I think, his first meta move because the loudspeaker at the end is what announces the cast of the movie. (laughs) It's a very interesting way to say that that the narrator's authority figure is 
now informing us instead of uh, just being part of what the part of what the movie world is. It's now a part of our world. Wasn't well, he reading the ad copy from the studio at one point? <laughs> <laughs> Believe that he is. I think that's yeah. the description. He's reading. He's reading the ad copy. So that yeah, there is that that fourth wall breaking. So that meta element is going to be on steroids in Brewster McLeod. The title character of Altman's 1970 follow-up to MASH is played by Bud Court, and he lives in the Houston Astrodome. There, with the help of his guardian fallen angel, Brewster builds contraptions and seeks the gift of flight. Meanwhile, a series of murders brings to town the famous detective played by Michael Murphy, with the only clues connecting the murders being the suspicious presence of bird shit. Hmm. Suspicious Presence of Birdshit might be a fine alternate title for both this movie and Mel Brooks's High Anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> this film is a way of having conventional filmmaking and just putting all your fingers in it and mashing it together in this deranged goulash of different perspectives that uh, it can leave it can leave you just kind of out of breath and uh, different levels of elated frustrating how much that you like having random imagery pop into your head this film in in its place after mash kind of reminds me of every time the coen brothers get respectable for a minute and then kick it off <laughs> you know kick off that respectability with their very next weird comedy like the way that they would follow fargo with the big lebowski or no country for old men with burn after reading like that need to to be weird and disreputable mm-hmm. almost immediately like don't assume that we're going to be polite now that you've given all the accolades but like this does feel like the one time that Altman is acknowledging the counterculture audience that showed up for MASH and making a film that seems more directly aimed at them than seems to be his custom. Uh, as far as it's a film that seems to presume that the audience would arrive at the theater stoned. Um, <laughs> the pop music to it feels very tied to that moment in time. I mean, even having the Wicked Witch of the West herself, Margaret Hamilton, singing the national anthem awfully feels like a wink to that protest generation. <laughs> It feels like he's aware of a particular audience and trying to please them rather than throw them the curveball that the genre experiments do. See, hmm. see, for me, this is the ultimate genre experiment. Hmm. It, I think it is one of the most utterly outrageous films I have ever seen because it's not just deconstructing a particular genre, it's deconstructing the idea of a film itself. I feel like the opening five or six minutes of this film may be one of the most brilliant and audacious things I've ever seen. It starts out even before the film itself with the MGM logo. The lion of the logo says, I've forgotten the opening line, Mm -hmm. which 
is an announcement right there of what's about to happen. We move to a lecturer about birds who will slowly throughout the course of the film turn into a bird. We then move into the Houston Astrodome where Margaret Hamilton is attempting this god-awful version of the national anthem. But, but its moment of genius is that this is happening over the opening credits. And the opening credits begin, and then she's not happy with the way the marching band is backing her up. This is a marching band of African-American kids, which is no accident. So she stops everything. She says, stop everything, and starts all over. And then when she does, the credits themselves start all over. Before she has a chance to do it again, Brewster himself is shown for the first time looking at the camera slyly and intervening by replacing the national anthem track with the black national anthem of Lift Every Voice and Sing, at which point the marching band starts to dance with joy that wasn't there at the beginning. Again, we're, we're only just starting, and the film has already become so twisted. So what it might look like on drugs, I don't know, or to the counterculture movement at the time, I don't know. But what it appears like to me is an absolute throwing away of any kind of formula or expectations we might have. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned the contrast between the two national anthems, because I feel like he replays that in the opening to Nashville, that contrast between stuffy white performances and black soul music, the way that he clearly favors one over the other, although he he's a lot more brutal with the national anthem and Margaret Hamilton and Brewster McLeod. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about how this is also, in a way, like a vigilante film, but this is a liberal vigilante film, so he's killing bigots and abusive men, but it's that same desire to have people punished outside the law mm-hmm. uh, and, and then the police Frank Shaft and this is before <laughs> Shaft became famous name for another cop but I mean even that's making it's a total parody of Bullet right. I mean right down to the car chase so he's making fun of a very right wing genre it feels like in the ballpark of like Robert Downey Sr.'s comedies or um, even the early pre-Hitchcockian De Palma, I think where's that comparison I've read? Like, like High the, Mom? The, yeah, that kind of hip, edgy comedy of the time. But at the same time, it's also something that can work in condiments as suggestive sexual joke. It has like that kind of body comedy that isn't totally out of his system from MASH. It's, it's interesting how it seems that you guys have these two kind of distinctive views on the intent behind why he is presenting these things in such a distinct manner. Brad, you seem to totally enjoy that part. And Bill, you're thinking it's a little more that it's catering to an audience. I don't, yeah, and I don't mean that like I'm judging him for that. It's just curious because Altman doesn't really seem to have that sensibility very often. And it feels a little weird to me because that's made Brewster McCloud feel dated to me in a way that none of the other films we're talking about really do. I don't feel like most of them really feel rooted to their era quite the way Brewster McCloud does. Hmm. Mm. I Yeah, I see that. I see that it's it's being more an explicit commentary of its time. And now my impression is that I kind of think this is 
Altman's most personal film. Part of it is a, a feeling that I get from MASH and a lot of his other films is that he has such a great inverted feeling that people are trying to form groups, but they don't quite fit. It doesn't quite work with each other. It's a sense of dislocation. Now, if you've seen films of Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick does human dislocation mostly from his godlike perspective on things often, right? Altman, I think, has a similar feeling, but his perspective is completely different because he dives in and he shows things as being one, as being part of this dislocation. And in this way, I think he's looking at filmmaking in a similar way to how Charlie Kaufman looked at the process of creation in his film Adaptation. That thing you brought up, Bill, about how he got his start making these war films and making so many films for television and industrial films, he was aware of the process of filmmaking. And I believe a lot of Brewster McCloud is attempt for him to just cut loose, to just go, okay, I know how to make the cop movie. Let me just show it to you and just show the absurd parts of the stuff you, quote unquote, have to do in a cop movie. Right. In the same way, I've seen the birds. Let's go see how a bird's going to be a threat <laughs> in the most crazy way possible. It's, it's bathed in this absurdism. And the entire through line of the film is this strange idea of this kid wanting to fly and that this spiritual creature will enable him to do that. And Bud Court's oddness, I think, kind of plays in well with this role, because like Harold, the other famous role he has in Harold and Maud, he's always more than a bit off. Yeah, that's for <laughs> sure. That's for sure. As is his mission. And that's kind of why I don't think... It's as much to try to go and give the kids what they want as some sort of personal statement of his. I feel at the end of Brewster McCloud, Altman gives a moment of glory to what up till then has been a very crazy comedy of pure absurdism when he gets this device and it's actually flying. But where is it flying? It's flying inside. So mm -hmm. it's ironically, it both shows this kind of glory of potential freedom and the restrictions that were already in place for that freedom at the same time. And so I think Sally Kellerman's character wants Brewster to go and get this ineffable quality that lets a person soar. And it looks at the Icarus-like idea uh, and explores that in the midst of all this craziness. And I think it's all, that the fact that it's also related to birds is fascinating, too, and that the birds are having their sort of revenge on all the dumb, evil, harsh things that humans are doing. I think that's kind of explicit. Well, yeah, there's some dialogue uh, from the, the lecturer about how we've affected birds' environment for far more than birds could ever affect ours. So there's kind of an environmental message there. And that lecturer, by the way, is the connective element of this film. We keep cutting back to him as he uh, 
starts to change into a bird, but also provides more odd bird analogies to what we're seeing on screen. <laughs> right. It's an already perverted version of what the uh, professor in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show was doing. <laughs> To the extent that a film like this can be spoiled, uh, we're a uh, spoiler warning to talk about the ending of the film. His guardian angel has has left him, possibly because he had sex. There seems to be kind of an analogy going on between uh, sexuality and the ability to fly. So he does soar through the Houston Astrodome for a bit until he plummets to his death. And then for the ending credits, we turn to a Fellini-esque circus where all the actors are now dressed as circus characters, clowns and acrobats and whatever, except for Bud Court, who while everyone else, including the ones who've been killed uh, previously, get to take their bow, we get a zoom in on Bud Court, still dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I never really have totally figured out what the metaphor is supposed to be for this ending because you mentioned how his guardian angel type character the sally kellerman character is trying to caution him against hooking up with the shelly duvall character and so i think forbidden fruit i think adam and eve imagery and then you also mentioned the icarus imagery of course like flying too close to the sun and the wings give way and you plummet to, to death but i don't think that brewster is a is a character that represents any kind of hubris. If anything, he's a psycho killer. <laughs> mm. I've always just gone with it in the moment, but I've never, I've never quite sorted out if there's a message that I'm missing. We are also warned by the lecturer not to try to make too much sense of yeah. what's going on explicitly. So yeah. it may be that the, the, the connective tissue there just does not exist. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I'm not saying in any way that it's a pure allegory towards Icarus or in terms mm -hmm. of the creation myth or anything or like that. So much so is that the way it's filmed is done in a way that you are meant to be uplifted by the fact that his ridiculous looking contraption actually works mm -hmm. that is i believe a successful feeling that the film gives out and i think it ties to the idea of human endeavor and what the feeling of say transcending the mundane the idea that the dreamer the visionary person is left alone and then the community is able to just commit on the party all on their own is something that I think we may see pretty soon in some of Altman's other work. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man It's hard to hold the hand of anyone Who's reaching for the sky just to surrender Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender For example, that theme very well may come up in Altman's next film, McCabe and Mrs. Miller from 1971. This is about the settling of the new town of Presbyterian Church in Washington State, circa 1902. 
as the community grows, a slick gambler named McCabe, played by Warren Beatty, has plenty of ideas on how to get rich off the developments, notably by importing prostitutes, which is soon organized by the cockney madame Mrs. Miller, played by Julie Christie. With money to be made, the mining company wants to see its share and won't take no for an answer. Well, we, we could not have uh, more of a contrast of moods uh, <laughs> as we move away from comedy and into this amazingly austere and uh, beautiful film that is a different kind of Western because taking place really in the Northeast instead of the usual uh, desert towns we generally get here, this community is erupting in the middle of a forest. The cinematography here by Vilmos Zygmunt is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, there is such beauty to these shots, to the way the both the, the town of Presbyterian Church is portrayed and also to these the hard lives these characters have to live. I have two things to say to that. Well, one, this feels earthier than other Westerns, even the spaghetti Westerns, because it feels so much like a documentary in terms of the dialogue. McCabe feels like they've just stumbled in on those guys in a real bar. Like it has the most documentary-like quality to it. But also you mentioned Vilmos Zygmunt. So this is not the first famous DP that he's worked with because Laszlo Kovacs, uh, Zygmunt's uh, mentor and friend, shot that cold day in the park. But the Zygmunt films in Altman's canon uh, have the most beautiful cinematography, atypically beautiful, because Altman's films have this very distinct, aggressive cinematography style. There's definitely a presence behind the camera, but with Vilmos, the lighting, the golden brown color palette, the sunrises, it's eye candy as well. But this is also a, a typically sad and beautiful Western, like a very poetic film. I mean, this this kind of is painting the way for... Um, I think of films like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, maybe even, um, in a way, uh, Dead Man, the Jarmish film. Like it, it's it's going for something closer to, I hate to say tone poem, because this is still very much like a narrative drama. The McCabe has that line, I've got poetry in me. That could be Altman talking as much as Beatty talking, as much as McCabe talking. Like everybody is going for something a lot more artful than maybe that they were famous for. Born Beatty is coming off things like Bonnie and Clyde. He does not have something in his prior work that really prepares you for how good he is in this. And I think this is the first time that he's using a movie icon, movie star, and deconstructing that image. And maybe even more than Elliot Gould, like this is the most effective he is with that strategy. This is a whole other level for him, I think, as a presence in film. That's really interesting you bring that up, Bill, because... I think that it gets beyond the persona to sort of capture the essence of what makes Beatty Beatty. Now, what I think makes Beatty Beatty is that he has these men they idle good looks and this ambition, but his ambition leads him astray and he finds himself in events out of his league. His persona in films such as Shampoo and the Parallax View, it touches on him. That's where his 
general presence seems to bring the stories along. And here it's applied to the idea of the Western <laughs> in a really fascinating way. Well, I'll share a prejudice I have, which is that generally I really don't like Warren Beatty. I find him usually an annoying presence. And even in some of his better films like Bonnie and Clyde and The Parallax View, I find that these films succeed uh, despite Beatty rather than because of him. Yet here for the one time, I feel like Beatty has been cast perfectly his screen persona is one of constantly being dumbfounded, constantly being <laughs> confused. And that seems to me to be the, the one thing Beatty's able to regularly get across uh, as an actor. And it's a perfect match for McCabe. He is a character that thinks he has all the answers, that comes in as cocky and confident as can be throughout the film until he very slowly realizes how much trouble he's in, how much he's gotten in over his head. Yeah, you get a sense that he's bluffing. Uh, and you don't know that at first because he's just the stranger who comes to town, like that very standard Western trope. But you think he's this this man's man, this alpha male type that is making moves to win influence from his first time in the bar. Like he's buying drinks and he's talking tough. He's, he's being funny, but you don't know how much of it is him creating an image for himself out of nothing, out of just confidence. Right. And that's the brilliance then of bringing in Mrs. Miller, the Julie Christie character, because she's the one who pretty much exposes him as somebody who doesn't really know what he's doing, because one of his big ideas is to uh, start uh, to bring a brothel to town and, and to bring in prostitutes. But they're uh, kind of a sad bunch as he, <laughs> as he brings them in. And, and one of the themes that more traditional Westerns and even Leone goes in, in with is that women are a civilizing influence on the West and that uh, a town like this will never be complete until it's one that can be inhabited by women. And that's turned on its head by pretty much the only women in the film being prostitutes. But Christy knows what she's doing as this madam who knows exactly how to make this business profitable, which in turn helps McCabe grow the town. But he knows that none of this would really be possible without Mrs. Miller. Mm. I think part of the, what make, makes McCabe a fascinating character is just to the extent of how much he knows even what he's doing himself. That's one of the film's more remarkable qualities is that it explores a lot of these ideas of the Westerns. What's the civilizing influence? What's the means to be heroic? What does it mean for a person to just define themselves? What's the person's true identity that they can forge in the West. And it shows how amazingly inadvertent all these <laughs> things can just end up being. It's so at the whim of both people's own influences, people's own lack of perspective, and just the random things that befall them. 
McCabe is in his position because he has been faking it till he makes it. In mm-hmm. effect, <laughs> he's a, a, a big talker, a bit a big personality, and it's carried him this far. And his interactions with Mrs. Miller provides this structure. But what's cool is that it's not really a conventional romantic relationship. In a large case, it's just business. Yeah, that ampersand in the title is not an accident. They're partners in a business sense. It's not a it's not a romance in the in the conventional sense. In fact, even in the moment when they uh, consummate their first lovemaking session, she's photographed in this wonderful glow as she lovingly points to the dressing room table where he needs to just drop some money. <laughs> yeah, there's no freebies for McCabe. <laughs> there, yeah. Well, right. There is no freebies. He has to go and make a deal. And he has to go and compromise. And even in the West, there are these economic forces that just dictate what characters do or constrict characters, even in something where you think it's free. That impulse that I feel at the very end of Brewster McLeod with the flight is here in the entire Western scope. This is where I think it, it lives to how you call it, Brad, a deconstruction, because it's taking these very sensibilities of the Western and making an explicit criticism of it mm-hmm. or a commentary on that. That what does that, But what does that mean, really? That's one of my favorite things that McCabe Miss Miller does, just to show how these systems and civilization isn't explicit because, oh, this person goes to town or these people arrive. It's just something that happens out of all the random interactions of the characters. This town gets built from just a series of tents and I think one shoddy building (laughs) to a bustling town all in the background. (laughs) You don't see what in a standard movie would be the montage of, of people moving the wall up and getting this um, saloon built. It's just partly built, then it's a little less partly built, then it's completely built. <laughs> and then it looks better, then the furniture starts looking nicer. It's all in the details in the background as all the different interactions of the characters, as they just do their own thing, cause a town to almost like spontaneously create. It's a really wonderful perspective, I find. This also introduces the uh, the theme that the villain uh, the villains of the piece are are big business. It's corporate culture, and this this you know carries over into things like Nashville also. Just like the the money people are ultimately the real bad guys. I'm reminded even of another western that Vilmos Sigmund filmed later, uh, Heaven's Gate. Like that, the ultimate bad guys are are stand-ins for corporate America. Um, can we talk about the music of this film, the ballads of Leonard Cohen, as a score for a western? I mean, I think that this is as good a match as Simon and Garfunkel for The Graduate or Cat Stevens for Harold and Maude. Like, this feels like the right tone. And it's funny because Leonard Cohen was still a relatively new artist. Like, these are songs from his first record. But had his own career not kind of carried on over the decades, that could have really dated the film. But I feel like the fact that Leonard Cohen is still a recognized artist today, I mean... That seemed like a bold choice at the time, but it feels completely correct. I mean, what are your impressions of the score for this? I think it's, along with the cinematography, one of the greatest strengths of the film. As one of the connecting elements we've been discussing, this might be the strongest, because here it's these songs that bring us from scene to scene to scene. 
particularly the main theme, Cohen's The Stranger Song, written, as you said, uh, a few years before the film, so not really about what we're seeing. But as you're listening to lyrics about this stranger who uh, is a gambler, you can't help but view the Leonard Cohen songs as commentary on the action of the film. When the prostitutes are introduced, we, we switch to a song called Sisters of Mercy. And Cohen's style is so perfect for this. It's a haunting voice, and the songs are sparse, and they, they so fit the mood of what Altman is going for here. The first time I saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller was when I was working in a video store in North Carolina, and the two people that introduced it to me were the owner of the shop, who was a a local small-town businessman, and the uh, head clerk, who was a, a drug addict. And their favorite film, both of them, was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And they couldn't be more unlike as people. But when I watched it, I watched it thinking of these two people and how this film spoke to them on some level. I'm looking for what what is it about this film that speaks to the self-made man and the person that was prone towards escaping it. And I remember him commenting that that ending with Julie Christie in the opium den really resonated with him on some level that I don't think I even really understood at the time what his personal issues were. But I think whenever I watch it, I think of my first encounter with it and like how that film, which is such an idiosyncratic film in so many ways, uh, can really connect deeply to people and how they see themselves. This also introduces the trope of the loner who talks to himself that we'll see in other films like The Long Goodbye. Mm -hmm. This is where the overlapping dialogue, which was a big part of the massive hit MASH, becomes almost abstract in places. It's the idea of dialogue as ambient mood setting, where you don't understand every word. And especially in the first act, you got to get comfortable with the fact that there's a lot of chatter that you can't decipher. There is so much that we don't hear or just kind of hear little bits of. But I think that fits in with what Altman is about because Altman requires a lot of his audience. He requires us to be active viewers of his films. And he's not going to hand things to us on a silver platter. He's going to present an entire world to us and it's going to be up to us to determine what we get out of that. Yeah, to that extent, I do think that's a detriment to the movie because it's one thing to show disparate people in the community and how things get built as a result. But if you go too far, then what you could run into a problem with is that you don't care. And all the chatter, you might be given to just treat it as just background noise. Hmm. There is a really good story that we could follow that we are not getting to follow because we're hearing so much overlapping stuff in the beginning. And I think it it diminishes the idea of... I think something where McCabe's appearance would be more iconic may have helped. Hmm. I find that while McCabe and Mrs. Miller, maybe because they are so strong and they're 
so multifaceted in how they uh, approach things that the depiction of almost everyone else in the town just suffers as a result to the extent that I just don't care about any of these people because they come across to me as just peons slash cannon fodder that are not worthy of the consideration of what uh, the film does with McCabe or Mrs. Miller or the people that they expressly deal with. Well, I could not have had more of an opposite impression than that. I, I feel that Altman very much shows us and lets us hear exactly what we need to hear and where he doesn't tell us exactly what's going on with these characters he lets us know anyway which brings us to i think one of the most affecting moments of the film that doesn't involve the two leads which is keith carradine in what i think might be his first role coming into town and getting shot down in cold blood by this kid who's looking to make a name for himself I found that one of the most affecting uh, death scenes in any Western. By the way, a really cute tangent is how, look at the distinction of the three mercenaries. You actually get a little subset of American colonization there. Hmm. It's a British guy, then a Native American, and then a young, impulsive American. I always felt like there was a good sense of who these other characters in the background were to the the degree that... um, you know, I think about these characters in the margins having their little moments to give them some distinction, but it's ultimately not their story. It's ultimately the McCabe story. So it's not a, it's not something like Nashville or a wedding or some of these ensemble films where there's everyone's giving a lot given a lot more development. It never bothered me that it felt so private. You mentioned that that moment on the bridge with Keith Carradine, and I think that that might be my favorite moment in the film. It's so heartbreaking. But it's it doesn't even need to be there, just other than it it's a great moment. Those characters are not really the leads of the story, but it's an illustration of the mining company's ruthlessness. So it has it has a dramatic function, but it's ultimately just a great movie moment. It's really interesting because it while it is depicted very effectively, it's really not important because, like you guys said, it's like McCabe's and Mrs. Miller's story, and he's not really there to witness it, and the only people who witness it are people who don't do anything about it anyway, and on top of all that, it's rendered completely redundant by what the real important scene would be to me when McCabe comes to the realization Mm -hmm. that these guys uh, are not willing to make a deal, and in fact, they're going to make a mockery out of his entire efforts to try and make a deal. That is an amazingly effective scene itself. Right. And the Carradine scene isn't important plot-wise, but it's incredibly important emotionally. Seeing the life and death stakes go very badly for this young man puts us in the mood where when we get into the finale of the film, and and here's where we're going to move into spoiler territory, we're even more invested in whether McCabe can survive these these assassins coming after him because the life and death issues in the film, kind of like the surgery in MASH, is made so vivid to us that we're incredibly invested. 
invested in the town surviving because I don't feel that. Well, I was particularly thinking of McCabe surviving mm. in this case. Oh, yes. But the way the climax works, works in that uh, the church of Presbyterian Church is on fire and the community basically is distracted from McCabe's attempting to fight for his life in this uh, snowy wilderness parts of the town while everyone else is focused on putting on this fire makes, I think, a very powerful contrasting sets of priorities for how important is McCabe to this community that he helped build because Mrs. Miller has pretty much checked out and is not going to be part of this because she's going to lose herself in an opium dream. The town is focused on the fire in the church and McCabe, just as he started, is going to end up alone. So if isolation is a characteristic uh, by the end of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it is going to be even more so in the next film we discuss, Images, released in 1972. Ams, as you probably know, are very small people. Quarrelsome, peaceful, jealous and kind, cowardly, brave, happy and sad as man-children have been since the dawn of time. They live in caves or little stone conical houses where thick furry bearskins hunt and fish and farm and paint wonderful things on the walls of their caves. But one thing you can never tell about an is his age. This takes place from the disturbed perspective of Catherine, played by Susanna York. She's an author of children's books with a home in the English countryside, And Catherine seems happily married, but receives visitations from her dead lover. Mysterious phone calls and unclear identities cause her to question the images that haunt her. Brewster, McCabe, and images announce themselves as you are seeing a different experience. The intro moments of images where she's relating this, what to me is a just terribly insipid story alternating by um, shots of inanimate objects with spooky music played under them put the film in an off-putting mood for me that it was never really able to recover yeah i know that this is one where we're going to disagree on i love images i think it's a great film i like that it's disorienting from the start i mean what works in putting you out of the film entirely at the beginning sucks me right in. The minor key, piano-driven compositions, the avant-garde jarring dissonant interruptions, it's such a a bold, unusual approach to horror. And it is a horror film. This is the territory of Let's Scare Jessica to Death or Messiah of Evil or Symptoms or things that kind of post-repulsion, the horror of a woman losing her mind in a house kind of horror. It also reminds me of the kind of horror that David Lynch would excel at later, like that kind of simple, surreal terror of what if your partner walked into another room and then came back as another person? It's something so primal and basic, but it's so inspired, I think. It's almost like if Boonwell's that obscure object of desire, but what if the character noticed that another actor had taken over the role? Like, it's that kind of jarring thing. It's very simple techniques for it, but it's also, it's so confidently told, it's beautiful looking, like it's another Vilmos Zygmunt collaboration. It makes good use of landscape. And it uses things that are not 
special effects that still give it like a dreamlike effect without being like um, distractingly unnatural. I think about moments like when she first arrives at that house and hears a sound upstairs that's unexplained and it echoes the kind of thing that Friedkin does in The Exorcist later. Those unexplained bumps in the house and what could that be? Is it in her head? And I mean, I think that this tends to get grouped with three women in the 70s period as far as like these women's surreal horror films that it's always curious to me that this is what actually comes out of him. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, the genre deconstructions. It's closer to Bergman or to closer to Polanski. Like, it's these arty, quasi-horror films. And I find that so fascinating because that's not what he's known for. Like, we mentioned the violence. He's not known for violence. He's, he's known for these uh, ensemble comedy drama things. He's not known for being a genre filmmaker. I mean, I get why this particular film can be off-putting. I, I totally understand this kind of arty nightmare logic 70s horror is totally my sweet spot. Like, I really like the kind of films that adopt, like, a regional location and a sense of the art film merging with the genre film. And it's rare to see the new Hollywood big guns dip their toe into this particular stream. Images is one of the only ones that really does it. But it is like his interiors and in that nobody really saw or wanted either from <laughs> said filmmaker. Like they wanted more mash. They did not want his take on Polanski. And it, the fact that it's so self-serious, I mean, that's something that Three Women does better because Three Women has the Altman humor kind of mixed into it. This is a much more pure dread film. I think for me, it's totally effective and unfairly underrated. And I should plug that the Arrow video Blu-ray has two of my past supporting characters guests doing the commentary on it. It's one of the best releases of the year in terms of home video. If for anyone listening that hasn't already checked it out, that's a fan of Altman and of this film, which is it's overshadowed by things that are more accessible. And I think that that's unfair because there's a lot to recommend in this. Well, sad, sadly, I have to unfairly underrate it my, myself. <laughs> um, I did find that there's a lot to admire about this film in the filmmaking craft itself. I'd agree that it's an absolutely gorgeous film, cinematography-wise, and that it's wonderful at setting a mood through both the look of it uh, and the, the avant-garde score. But I wasn't drawn in, Bill, the, the way you were, and I, and I very much wanted to be because these kind of psychological horror movies really are kinds of films I, I enjoy. But my problem is that it played its hand out far too completely right from the beginning and didn't really have anywhere to go from there. And so you kind of have an idea very early on what's going on, which is that our main character is seeing things that aren't there and that what she sees is most likely going to be her imagination. My problem was not with the conceit of what the movie is trying to do, but with the repetition of it, because the same series of uh, hallucinations present themselves over and over and over again to the point where I wanted there to be some progression that I just didn't find. I find it has neither progression nor 
build to your point of calling it like nightmare logic. It doesn't have nightmare logic either. I think where the movie f- goes astray is twofold. Earlier films that explore this territory, most notably Repulsion, they do something that's fairly important, which is they lay the groundwork towards this is some sort of expected frame of reality upon the film that you're watching so that when that reality then gets twisted, then you can feel disoriented and it leads to interesting thoughts and feelings and impressions as a result. The impression I got from the very beginning of this movie, by contrast, is two things. This woman's crazy and I can't trust any single thing that I see because this is from her point of view, so she could be thinking it, it could be just all in her entire head. That diffuses any sense of drama and a lot of the interest for uh, this film for me. And it doesn't actually help that when, the, the second part of it is that when her husband comes home, he is, at least structurally, as far as the plot is concerned, it's, he's supposed to be the counterpoint to her imaginings. Like when she thinks that someone else is there, he's supposed to be the grounding force to where you're questioning what part of her visions are real and what part is in her own head. However, her husband is the least realistic part of almost every other person who shows up in in images. He is defined by two things. His omnipresent, three things actually. His omnipresent cigar, his desire to hunt at all sorts of inopportune moments, and most weirdly, his desire to wear leather racing gloves no, no matter what he's doing, including brushing his hair. <laughs> so he comes across as like the biggest concoction artifice that now, and when he's supposed to be the grounding point as far as the story is concerned. So we get to a point that like near the end of the movie, a person looks over a ridge and they're seeing a horrible sight down there. But at that moment where a better movie would have like had it feel like it was inevitable. Oh my God, it had to be this person. But isn't it amazing it was this person? Instead, I was left by thinking, well, sure. Okay, it's that person. But it could be this other person, this other person, this part of her imagination, this uh, little girl who may or may not be part of her imagination. Could be the briefcase from Pulp Fiction. Could be a box that has a sign that says the end on it. <laughs> it could be anything because it means nothing. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, the movie itself to me just resolves into a series of Altman exploring how he can show like dislocated twists on the setting. I think the thing that's the most enjoyable of the movie is how well it depicts the outside environments are so lovely. And then, ironically, that you would mention interiors, because this is something which is uh, so desolate on, and when they get to this country home. And, the, and how he uses the effects of when people just show up out of this door or out of this hallway or out of this alcove or how you hear strange sounds or a very fun shot where she's working in the background... And then this fireplace is very slowly giving this ominous smoke. In terms of these visual effects, those are kind of interesting. But ultimately, I think it's a very shallow set of effects to go and uh, give people a vague, creepy sense. But it doesn't do too much more than that for me. I can understand the criticisms, but for me, just as an aesthetic experience, I... 
I find it very involving. Like the marriage of the cinematography and the way that the landscape becomes so overpowering. The notion of romantic infidelity, this seems to be a, a film informed by guilt over that. Like she's she's somebody that is haunted by all these men whether they be phantoms or real people that represent her unfaithful approach to marriage. But what kicks off her psychosis is this notion that her husband's having the affair, uh, like that fascination with infidelity. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that informs Lost Highway, which is a film I, I like a lot that has that same sense of the banal horror. If it doesn't all wrap up in a way that is thematically profound or deep, I don't know that that's necessarily always a bad thing for me. As just a journey through eerie situations, I find that satisfying in its own way. I would definitely agree with you, Bill, that it is uh, fascinating in both a contrast to what Altman has done before and is going to be very interesting as looking as a dry run towards an upcoming film we're going to be talking about. Before we get to that, we're going to be talking about right. the long goodbye. There's a long goodbye And it happens every day When some passerby Invites your eye To come her way even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go, you let the moment fly. Elliot Gould is Private Eye Philip Marlowe in 1973's The Long Goodbye. This version of Marlowe is out of place in the sunny world of early 70s Los Angeles. With his cat having run away and his good friend accused of murdering his wife, Marlowe seeks to prove his friend's innocence. But in doing so, he may lose his own. Mm. The way that sense of you are you are there from McCabe and Mrs. Miller combines with that sense of where the hell are you from images <laughs> <laughs> in a really nice way for the long goodbye. I think it's cool in that it is both making a comment upon the 70s and on noir and kind of making a interesting take on both at once. Yes, this this entire film I think really lives or dies on Elliot Gould's take on Marlowe, who has been in the past portrayed by Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep or by uh, Dick Powell in Murder, My Sweet, by Robert Mitchum in Farewell, My Lovely. This is a character who is a standard in the old-style film noirs, but for an anti-noir that is so very specifically trying to evoke the present-day time it was filmed, and also kind of just the idea of Hollywood as an artifice, Elliot Gould makes some really interesting choices. During filming, they called him uh, Rip Van Marlowe as, as a man out of his time. <laughs> and he expresses that in a lot of different ways. He doesn't just imitate these earlier noir actors, 
but he does have kind of the laconicness of those actors. He mumbles to himself. His catchphrase is, that's okay with me. And he kind of captures both the noir elements of his predecessors while still reflecting the do-your-own-thing vibe of the 70s. It's funny that you you mentioned the Rip Van Marlowe notion and just yeah his speaking voice in it feels like he's just still waking up like he has that that, that sleepy quality to it but the uh yeah I love the notion of a 1940s anachronism walking around hippified Hollywood <laughs> you know you have long-haired hoods and topless hippie chicks doing yoga on the patio he feels out of place at all times I was going to say that like um this film was of course quite controversial for the way Gould plays Philip Marlowe, people were still close enough to the Bogart way of looking at it that people were quite, uh, in some cases, offended by it. And this is something we haven't spoken about yet, but just people were really sometimes quite put off by the pessimistic inversion of, of, of genre that Altman would do. This film seems like it's making fun of that audience right from the get-go. I mean, you have the Hooray for Hollywood, like that smirk to the way it's used. And the way the security guard is doing impressions of old Hollywood movie stars it's like a you know elbow in the ribs of the people that would be outraged by this kind of approach to the Philip Marlowe character. I think for me, this is another one of his great films. I mean, I think this is the funniest Gould performance, out, with the possible exception of California Split. I can totally see how people whose impressions of Marlowe had been informed by Humphrey Bogart or the original stories of Raymond Chandler then get Gould, who is not an anachronism to me so much as a space alien from hippie land who who, uh, lands in the 70s and is more just trying to adjust to a world weirder than anything he could have found in the cosmos. (laughs) Is he at his Gouldiest? I don't know if I've seen enough Elia Gould to, to make that statement, but... All I can say is that his performance and what what he ends up doing is just this really, really strange collection of oddball behavior with a kind of proto-Jeff Lebowski attitude towards it. That's why I think the movie is moving simultaneously undercutting because he's not a noir type, with one notable exception, in any significant way. But at the same time, he is out of place <laughs> with his environment. Yeah, I think we have reached peak Gould with this, <laughs> uh, with this film. He is doing the uh, man out of place thing, but he also is playing with some noir tropes because you do have in the old movies kind of the incessant narration of the noir hero. Makes and it his, ironic that he's right, mumbling. And yeah. his version of that <laughs> is all this uh, mumbling to himself. He's questioning some women and he leads, leaves and says, ah, crazy ladies, just, <laughs> just, to him, just to himself. And he's also doing kind of the Columbo thing, which uh, oh. is to, is to mm. make himself constantly underestimated. He's getting harassed by the cops and, and the villains. And even though it's more weirder, he still gives off this vibe of you're not going to break me. You're not going to get me off my game because as much as, as the film is, is making fun of tropes, 
It's also based on an actual Chandler novel, and he really is going about solving the mystery. It is being a noir at the same time it's being an anti-noir. And it's rooted in a screenplay by Lee Brackett, who wrote The Big Sleep, an iconic classic noir. Actually, but the Bogart film that I think of with this, in a way, is actually Casablanca, Hmm. because I think about his non-committal attitude embodied by the it's okay with me catchphrase he keeps using, like he's not taking sides. And it isn't until the conclusion of the film where he commits to a side that it's, you know, it reminds me of of, of Rick and Casablanca that way, that he finally stops being uh, impartial, you know, that he, he takes a righteous stand and acts, which is out of character for how he behaves in the rest of the, the film, where he's, yeah, he's just wandering through and everyone is kind of giving him the business and he's just kind of still kind of waking up. <laughs> but I um, wanted to also just touch on real quick the music of The Long Goodbye, because people always comment on how with the exception of Hooray for Hollywood, almost all the music in it are variations on the John Williams, Johnny Mercer title tune, like variations out of it, where from the doorbell to the music, uh, at the grocery store to on the radio. But the song itself is quite downbeat and sad. And the fact that it's being reemployed in all of these absurd situations kind of sums up the approach of the long goodbye, which is a little bit downbeat, but also a little bit bizarrely funny and it also feels like the entire world is so enclosed and claustrophobic even though it's got a sprawling sunny california setting it still feels hermetically sealed by the fact that you are haunted by this tune everywhere (laughs) that he goes huh that's that's really fascinating and that's a fun avenue that i think people can go just just keep in the back of their heads i think you're onto something bill and how he looks at situations where you think you should be feeling, oh my God, this is such a big open space, and then making it feel confining. I think he, that's an effect that he does in an interesting way in images, for example. I think it ties in with how the Astrodome is, becomes confining at the end of Brewster McCloud. And I think maybe Paul Thomas Anderson had a, you can argue that his inherent vice is a little bit of a spiritual descendant in some way oh, to the long goodbye very much so and and part of the and part of it is because one of the biggest visual impressions that i got out of it is like wait this is in southern california i feel really claustrophobic you don't even <laughs> see the even when you see the, like the water it's just like in between two narrow buildings so it's like where's the openness in southern california right. sunlight is used here as darkness is used mm-hmm. in in more traditional noirs but i think both with the uh repeating of the long goodbye theme and the mood that you're talking about, I think it fits in perfectly with the loss of innocence theme throughout the film and is really hit home with a small but amazing performance by Sterling Hayden, who is one of those uh, older actors who usually has a, a very specific cadence that we're used to. And in this film, he really is unrecognizable as this Hemingway-esque author character who's struggling with his own existential questions as Marlowe is trying to get to the bottom of the case, prove his friend's innocence, yet he's kind of been brought into Sterling Hayden's world as well, which 
puts a more serious spin on some of the antics of the film. Yeah, I find like such a counter impression to McCabe and Mrs. Miller with the long goodbye they, uh, to me, because while in McCabe, I really felt for the two main characters and the, all the other people around seem to just fade into the, the lovely backdrops. Here is like the opposite situation happens in that like it's a great environment that it's explored so nicely. If there wasn't the mumbling clown being our, our guy through this particular level of uh, quote unquote hellish noir, I mean, if you really have, have this Dante, you're really going to go with clown because I think he shows himself to be an extremely competent private investigator. Right, as and the right, film and we'll we'll get and we'll up. get to that. That's <laughs> I'm being a little unfair there because that actually was my first impression when you first see the movie. That I, I was just feeling, well, why am I watching this guy when so many else of the other environments are these really great takes on various situations that a detective would find himself in? There is an increased level of awareness and self-criticism of how lovely and free-for-all and how accepting it ostensibly looks to be has these much harsher undercurrents underneath. Like the sudden explosion of violence by the Marty Augustine character comes out of nowhere, but it has such a great charge because it comes from his attempt to seduce Elliot Gould's Marlowe with the, uh, the idea of like, let me just tell you about my world and this is great casual manner. And then this violence happens and then says, and I like this person. So it's it's it twists the knife in or the coke bottle in really harsh but interesting way. And in a similar way, the way Sterling Hayden's character comes across as this big poetic voice of like authority and how that gets subsumed in the party that happens and what he does afterwards is also really interesting in how it in how that curdles how that's led in a distinct direction. All the, the environments through which Marlowe travels are given this level where I think as we're, as we're watching, we're seeing how things that we expect from both sunny California and un- stuff about the 70s and like supermarkets and apartment buildings and so on are given this sinister cast that we're made aware of, which I think is one of this film's most amazing features. Yeah, and it kind of brings us to the film's final twist because when you see The Long Goodbye a second time, it really is a different movie because of what happens at the end. So, again, spoiler warnings. Mm-hmm. Marlowe has been holding on to this idea that his friend is not a killer. He believes his friend actually uh, ended up killed himself but does find out that Terry Lennox's good buddy is still alive and was behind the murders. And they have a confrontation. Based on what we've seen so far, it could not be more of a punch to the gut. Basically, Elliot Gould's Marlowe shoots him down in cold blood at that time. And it's powerful. We've been watching his innocence be lost throughout the film this final revelation proves to him that nothing he knows 
is true. And if he was playing around with the idea that he wasn't going to be the cynical, hard-nosed Marlowe of his predecessors, now when, when faced with the truth, he's lost so much that he becomes the cold-blooded noir character. That's super fascinating because in one way it might you can even look at it as like the hardball detective's origin story. <laughs> <laughs> that ending redeemed for me a lot of what I didn't like about Gould's performance because I then had a realization that Columbo, like he was partly deceiving everyone all along by appearing to just be a buffoon who uh, people underestimate him at their peril and that he showed a capability that he would have had evident all along that was being kept hidden from both the other characters in the movie and us in the audience. But then it also works as a great inversion of what your average noir character goes through, right? I like to say that a noir story is about a detective who seeks out and looks, tries to find the answer to a mystery, and it becomes a tragedy because he finds it. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens here, but in the reverse direction. <laughs> because usually it's a detective who has a very rigid moral code, and he's a guy who presents himself as, I know all the angles. I know that uh, this guy is motivating this to do this, and, and so on. Like, like uh, Bogart's character in The Maltese Falcon. He's always three steps ahead of everybody else. But here we have a guy who looks like he's five steps behind everybody else. And then he becomes or reveals himself to be the person who was aware of the situation at the end. That I think is a real, I think is phenomenally cool trick that the movie pulls on us. And this helps us look at like his actions in repeat viewings to just see how much is this guy who's now suddenly more capable, who suddenly now we're more aware that he had this code and his loyalty to his buddy is not coming out of him just being lonely and confused so much as like an, a code every bit as rigid as honoring your partner's death in in some of Humphrey Bogart's films. Exactly. That it's it's it becomes rewarding in a great multifaceted way to watch The Long Goodbye with these new perspective in mind. It's funny also because um, the ending has such similarities to the ending of The Third Man as far as the main character finding out that his missing friend is actually a cad and a villain at heart and the disappointment of it that uh, Altman goes the full run of it and actually recreates the poetic ending of the third man, but then makes a joke out of it by having him dancing in the street <laughs> to the uh, strength of Hooray for Hollywood. Like it's one more like, isn't it kind of like the Carol Reed third man? Yep. Here's that exact same ending, but we're going to make a little bit of a joke of it right. or like, it, or, or, or party on top of it. Mm-hmm. Let, let, it's not quite, it's not, it still has that same moving feeling but then it doesn't stay there. It allows for those other beats to to come in. People looking for like that that somber closure are not going to be left with just that. It speaks to very much the approach of the entire film. Altman takes a quite a different take on the criminal underworld in his next film, Thieves Like Us, in 1974. Just 
did Romeo and Juliet consummate their first interview by falling madly in love with each other? Soft. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Brightness of her cheek would shame the stars. In this movie, Keith Carradine, Bert Remsen, and John Chuck are Depression-era bank robbers hiding out and planning their next heist. When Carradine falls in love with Shelley Duvall, he might want a new life for his new family, but old habits die hard, and the law is never far behind. This strikes me as uh, one of Altman's more conventional film. And it still works. I think it does its job very well. But despite having some of the Altmanisms like the old-timey radio shows as transitions, it's more loyal to its source material, both the book Thieves Like Us and there was another film based on this material called They Live by Night. But this one seems to recall a little bit more of the 1930s gangster films. And again, it it seems to do so with a bit more reverence, but with more of an emphasis on the relationships. Yeah, we were saying how in his earlier films, he's using these takes on established genres, but then also pulling in from what was current to him at the time. And here, it's it's a take on one film. <laughs> it's Altman's take on Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like very much like Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, the ending feels very much like the ending of the Arthur Penn film. And I, I mean, I think a little bit of Badlands, too, which would have also been around this time. But yeah, more explicitly, Bonnie and Clyde. It reminds me more of that than... Um, then they live by night, the Nicholas Ray version of the same story. But yeah, um, I like this film a lot. I feel like the opening tells you a lot about the approach to crime and action, which is the carjacking. There's no indication of a hot pursuit or, or really that much in the way of tension. There's no high speed car chase. There's no shootout. It's just humor and character moments. And I think that that's probably why it was ultimately an uncommercial film, because it's not about the gunplay of, of Bonnie and Clyde. It's about the downtime between those uh, bank robberies. He had plenty of practice filming bank robberies, back to the industrial films that he made in Kansas before getting to things like on television. I think maybe he was just bored of the conventions of genre filmmaking by this point. And I think that he's more interested in the fumbling, flirty courtship between Keith Carradine and Shelley Duvall than he is in showing his chops at delivering exciting action, which makes it a very specific kind of crime film. Like, it's a hangout movie. I mean, a lot of these films are, and that's something that comes from Hawks also, that prioritizing of character above plot momentum. And it has all the same kind of grace notes that you would expect in an Altman film. Like, I'm thinking of... They're having a conversation about the next thing to do in their fugitive crime spree, but then a little girl walks in and starts practicing tap dancing. Mm-hmm. That probably wasn't in the script. It doesn't feel like the kind of thing... It feels like just a way to bring extra life and interest into a scene. Whether or not it's in the script or not, I don't know. But the fact that it feels like real life, that's the kind of thing that distinguishes this from Bonnie and Clyde. For all of its new wave bounce and freedom, it doesn't have that same sense of invention on the spot the way this kind of comes off as. Well, I think that the both Bonnie and Clyde and Thieves Like Us are fascinating to look at together because I think they both have invention, but they're working at sort of cross-purposes. There is a kind of famous story, maybe it's 
uh, apocryphal where Hawks was so pissed at High Noon that he made his film Rio Bravo as a sort of a response to it. Again, maybe it's just the proximity of the two films, but I look at what Altman's doing with Thieves Like Us and I find a lot of it can be looked at as a response to what Bonnie and Clyde is doing, which I think what Bonnie and Clyde tries to do is it gives a vibrancy and a sense of like new icons coming out of the woodwork as these two super enthusiastic kids become these iconic bank robbers. And, and thus the ending of Bonnie and Clyde is, becomes almost mythic in, uh, by comparison. Whereas I think here he's in Thieves Like Us, Altman's demythologizing. And he's doing it very particularly through the casting, which I, I think is the, the strongest element, because what he's done is taken basically his supporting pool of players and given them their own movie. Shelley Duvall has not had a lead up until this point. Keith Carradine has not had a lead up until this point. Burt Remsen... We've already seen him, Brewster McLeod, and we'll see a bunch more times. I don't think has ever been better than in Thieves Like Us. And John Shuck, who played this kind of lumbering innocent in MASH, is utilizes a more threatening kind of character. The contrast to Bonnie and Clyde, I think, is a good one because the time it takes to establish these relationships help us invest and and really pay off. I think particularly in terms of the romance, because the romance doesn't feel like the standard romance because the actors are so quirky. They're coming together almost, almost in a mumblecore kind of way (laughs) that you, that you see in, in modern films you raised the exact same point I was about to make, which is, yeah, that it is a, uh, a film of character actors. And think about, well, let's see, what actor was he fighting for all hours of the night in Canada only a few years ago on a Western, but Warren Beatty. So to take Beatty's breakthrough film and then reinvent it without movie stars seems to be a very Altman kind of thing to do. Because if nothing else, Bonnie and Clyde presents bank robber as rock star. It's glamour. It's all big actors. And this totally inverts that by replacing them with the background players and supporting players in the Altman repertory company. The fact that it had no Beatty or Paul Newman or any of the kind of big stars that he normally worked with, the fact that it has that Keith Carradine is the most well-known name and he wasn't a star, that was bold, interesting casting. I think about the relationship in this, and it has maybe the most tender love scene in Altman's filmography. I'm trying to think of this another one that comes as close to being sweet. I think you're right, and I think part of that credit goes not just to the actors, but to the use of the radio in that scene, because uh, yeah. the radio yeah. is playing excerpts from an old-time performance of Romeo and Juliet, and you have this announcer saying, this is the story of the great love of Romeo and Juliet. The lovemaking kind of has a rhythm to it to where they stop and start at various times. Mm -hmm. And every time they start again, the radio program starts again. Yes, (laughs) that was a super fun touch, especially how the radio announcer has this great Walter Winchell delivery 
And that's kind of fascinating how the environment comments on, on their action. And their relationship is quite lovely. I find both those characters just very, very charming. It works a really interesting angle on the standard dichotomy of the wife pining away for their gangster, for their gangster husband who, who can't stop uh, getting out of the life. Mm-hmm. It does a really interesting take on that, and his partners in crime provide a really nice dynamic, sort of a proto-Jim Jarmusch way about how they're uh, always uh, looking at for themselves in the paper and just... And spending so much time just hanging around at the dinner table, having these just random conversations. Yeah, they're not hardened criminals. They come off very amateurish, although they they seem to have pulled off a number of these jobs. That's a great point, mm-hmm. because it, it also does counter to Bonnie and Clyde in a really fascinating way that kind of echoes the end of Long Goodbye in, in this particular aspect. One of the really cool moments at the end for, of Thieves Like Us for me was how he has become a legend, but he doesn't know it at all. <laughs> <laughs> he is completely oblivious to how much everyone in the area fears and idolizes him, which couldn't be more different than how Clyde Barrow thinks of himself. So I think that's a really cool detail that the movie provides. Right. So. It, it also echoes the long goodbye a bit in how it lulls you into a sense of security that we kind of like these people and they have this nice rapport. And so then when cold-blooded violence occurs at the end, it comes as more of a shock because we really don't expect it from what we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the uh, the other members of the gang, the John Shuck and Burt Remsen characters, and how they lack the sexy appeal of the bank robbers in Bonnie and Clyde in more subtle ways. Like, I think about the Remsen character being kind of an old, lecherous head of the gang. We talked about the older and younger pairings in this and his lusting after Lula, the uh, Anne Latham character in, in that film. I'm always surprised that they actually get together every time I watch it. And then the uh, the John... Yeah, he's definitely learning from Harvey Weinstein's playbook of uh, <laughs> sed- seduction. Oh, yeah, no, it's yeah. super creepy. And then the Chickamaw character, the John Shuck character... On the one hand, he's like a big oaf, but then like he kills somebody in cold blood when they bust him out of jail. Like he's dangerous and not in a charismatic way. Like he's not a likable character ultimately. Like he's threatening. It reminds me of the violence in The Long Goodbye with the bottle or the death of uh, mm-hmm. Keith Carradine's character. Like Altman, he's very selective with the use of violence in the films, but when it is employed, it's so impactful. Uh, and I think that that character is a lot more threatening on a rewatch, if you know that he's always capable of, of lashing out that way, like where he's kind of played as a big dope, but the more the stakes are raised, the more they become unhinged and, and uh, out of control. Like they're not in control of the situation. Right, right, right. Being a big dope turns out to not preclude yourself from being an incredibly violent, <laughs> unstable big dope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Chuck does an effective descent into alcoholism and increasing frustration. There's a moment late in the movie where he gets rescued by Keith Carradine's character. And it's this a moment that I find really fun in a Jarmushian way as while being glad he's rescued, he still can't stop complaining about how <laughs> Keith Carradine gets more attention than him <laughs> as part of this. And, and they start bickering <laughs> while in the middle of what should be a getaway. It's a really cool way of how Altman is undercutting this 
sense of, like, as you put it, Bill, so well, the rock star sensibility that informs Bonnie and Clyde. And also so true how he's using violence deliberately to put us off kilter, but not in a Tarantino way to just, like, leave us on edge, but as an explicit way of commenting on why we want or expect violence in these kinds of stories. Like, there's one heist that's literally depicted, and it's depicted in this cross between a God's eye view and what would be a Depression-era version of a security camera footage. It's just high above, it isn't moving, and it's just showing the methodical and incredibly banal ways these bank-robbing rock stars are committing this act. Right, because we don't even get to see the first few uh, bank robberies, but we do get to see them try to recreate the robberies for the entertainment of the children in the hideout house they're, That's they're right. staying in. <laughs> That's right, and it doesn't go well, mostly right. thanks to Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> but from there, I think we move to another kind of big score, right, Brad? Right, because Altman's second film of 1974 was California Split. $20 says you can't name the seven dwarfs. Okay. I know I can name three or four of them, but now you've got to be able to seven of them. Okay, I then. got seven. Doc? That's one. Dopey? That's two. Uh, Snoopy? There is no Snoopy. There ain't no Snoopy. No, sorry. I know there's Doc. There's Dopey, there's Grumpy, there's... Uh... You don't have $20 here. Wait a second, I got $20 okay. right here. Right. Well, come there's on, I need a little help here. What about... Here comes seven like a Gatling gun. Okay, there seven any? dwarfs, okay. I'm ready. Sleepy, Grumpy, Duck. That's four. That's three. Oh, I'm with you. Okay, wait a second now. There's Sleepy, Grumpy, Sleepy Duck. Way. Sleepy, Grumpy, Dopey. Dopey. We got D- Dumbo. There's no Dumbo. Dumbo wasn't in that cast? No, Dumbo. The story of two friends, played by George Siegel and Elliot Gould, they meet around a poker table and both bond over a love of gambling, all kinds of gambling, which takes them from the highest highs to the lowest lows and back again. This might be my favorite Robert Altman film. It's very hard for me to rank them, and there's at least two coming up that I could also say I like just as much. But, I mean, for me, just it's it's another hangout movie, and I find that this might be my favorite pair to hang out with of all of the the characters. It's my favorite use of Elliot Gould, maybe even more than The Long Goodbye. I mean, I like George Seagal a lot in it, too, but it's I just find it the funniest and most ingratiating film it's hard to really su- summarize a plot to it. I mean, there is a narrative, and I'm, we could we could mention that it was originally uh, Sp- Steven Spielberg, a, a very much a narrative filmmaker, was the original director, but he was uh, he left the project and Altman took over it. What I like about it is not the for momentum of the story itself; it's just their behavior and their humor and how they occupy a room. I, I just find it so rich. A film along that way and it's it's the fully developed film grammar that he employs in nashville as far as he's now miking all the actors and choosing what to use i mean he's got overlapping dialogue obviously prior to this but this is the, a more sophisticated way of achieving the altman effect and i think it's the stunning use of sound the the visual poetry of something like the Vilmos sigmund films is gone it's more functional 
cinematography it uh, it doesn't call attention to itself as eye candy the way that something like the Lunkabai or Mickey and Mrs. Miller does but it's Altman at the top level uh I understand the argument that Nashville is the great achievement in this but if I just need something to unwind after a long day this is the one I go to yeah, th- this is an enormously charming film, and it is Altman kind of backing off from a few of the regular touches that we see. There are no connective cues in this film. The overlapping dialogue, like you said, is enhanced with the new technology, so we have none of those moments like in McCabe where we don't understand what somebody is saying. For me, the bottom line is here is an actor's director doing an actor's movie. Elliot Gould and George Siegel have fantastic chemistry. They can play off each other like nobody's business. So there are times when they seem to be so in tune with each other as as these gambling addicts, but then you notice these very subtle differences in how they're responding to winning and losing, to Gould's love of the game itself more than winning. Just the act of gambling is a big high for him. And for Siegel, it's far more results-oriented, which makes him a less of a candidate for someone who could sustainably make gambling his life. But there's so many great improvised moments, like when they drunkenly try to name the seven dwarfs. <laughs> and and again, I, th- I think that these two actors just come up, just have such amazing chemistry that it carries the film to such heights. Siegel is a perfect placement in this story. He, to me, gives the straight man that puts Elliot Gould and his antics in perfect context because he's a person who shares this obsession, but he has more practical, real-world concerns like trying to maintain a job. But he, at the same time, he is so thrilled by not just having a partner in crime. Now, I wouldn't say crime, but a partner in... Excess. <laughs> in excess in fakery, like how they make up stories for the, mm-hmm. the women that they invite over, and for gains that are not properly gotten through legitimate business, let's put it that way. And the transition of Seagal, he's more and more turned onto the gambling side by the, the, the cool things that Gould's able to do, like his uh, demonstration of how to play the piccolo, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> While it doesn't have much of a plot in terms of what's happening next, what's happening next, you see the gradual transition through Seagal, the, the change in Seagal's character. And it attains a really good momentum that way. The way the film delivers a feeling, I think was spectacularly effective in this film because it gets the thrill and the terror of doing high stakes. Mm-hmm. It just harkens back to the what Janis Joplin famously said about freedom. It's like, freedom's just another word for saying that you have nothing left to lose. California Split feels that that essence of the kind of dangers. It means to just try to define things your own way and, and not follow any strictures at all and just go on a high wire act without even necessarily knowing if there's a wire at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
We've seen so many gambling scenes in films, and it's very easy for them to become trite. And we're used to the idea of the stakes being the winning and losings. But by making the characters' personalities and motivations so vivid for us, those gambling scenes take on a new sense of urgency. So especially when we get to the uh, end game with Siegel at the high stakes table, it is as suspenseful as any gambling scene I've ever witnessed. The Seagull character is the character that we're meant to identify with as the uh, as the stranger wandering through this entire culture of, of gamblers. But I think that Elliot Gould is like the platonic ideal, like the, he's the best friend you want to have in that circumstance. Like he's someone that shares your addiction, but he's he's hilarious. And he invites you to live in his world with these attractive, hip women that he... Are they meant to be escorts? They are prostitutes. Yeah, they are prostitutes. I think about it like compared to the dynamic in MASH with Sutherland and Gould and how it's, it's similar behind the scenes in that Gould got on Altman's rhythm big time by the time you get to California Split and Sutherland never was comfortable with it and Seagal was never totally comfortable with it either. So you have that tension there, but whereas Sutherland just has the kind of charisma that he still comes across as much like a cocky alpha male as Gould, maybe more so. Seagal's uncertainty about what he's doing on camera carries into the way the Bill, the character he's playing, comes off in those moments. Like he's somebody that's uncertain at all times. I find that like a very relatable quality because as a non-gambler, I would identify with that part of it. I also want to mention this, and this is not connected to anything else that we've said, but sometimes... I'm uncertain about my reaction to the way Hot Lips is treated in MASH. I have to just acknowledge that I'm not crazy about the scene with Burt Remsen as Helen Brown in this. The scene where they, they mock the trans woman that's hanging out with their roommates and want to go out. And they it's a case where they're being flippant in the way that MASH is, you know, the characters are flippant. But it's there's something still kind of icky about it for me. I understand the context. It was a different time, but it's maybe the one demerit. What is otherwise a, a film that I have a great affection for. I'm not, not crazy about that moment. Yeah, I, it, that's a good observation. First of all, it's the strangeness of seeing Burt Remsen <laughs> in that role because he's really the last kind of character from his other films that you'd imagine as such. But on the other hand... It is the 70s, and any kind of enlightenment we've achieved about LGBTQ and the idea of somebody being trans is just not on anybody's radar in 1974. Mm. I think it ties into the characters. I think it flows from these characters. Yeah, it's icky, but these are people who are not exploring the boundaries of propriety. Oh, oh yeah, it's be- it's believable behavior. It fits the characters. It would be actually surprising if they were progressive on that topic in that moment. It's still the outrageous rebel humor. It's punching down a little bit in that moment in a way that I'm mm. a little bit uncomfortable with. I'd actually differ slightly in that by that point, I don't feel that I meant to think that what 
Siegel and Gould are doing is just completely unapologetically awesome in the way that all the crazy abuse that is heaped that it happens in MASH is all part of the good, clean fun mm-hmm. of that environment. I think the film is has a great measure of honesty in showing, okay, these guys are it's fun, it's thrilling, it's exciting, it's also a little out of control, and they're also doing things that are not at all appropriate. And it's not just leading potentially to bad outcomes for themselves, but it's also leading to definitely bad outcomes to people around them. And so there I think it does justice by the discomfort you get from from that scene. At least I don't feel that they're just enjoying it as just a moment of merry prank to them. Well, I'd like to lead from that into uh, another scene that I think is really indicative of the uniqueness of California Split, which is when they are mugged. Yeah. (laughs) And they've just won a wad of cash. And at that inopportune moment, a mugger comes in at gunpoint to take that cash from them. And Gould, still on this gambling high, basically gambles with their lives and says, here, take half of it. And I'm gambling that that will be enough for you and that you won't shoot us, but you'll just be satisfied with half and we'll keep the rest of our winnings. Yes, exactly. I love that scene, too. Because up to that point, it moves the window over, right? Over what you think they're willing to gamble. And you go, okay, it's all fun and games until the gun comes out. And yet, no, no, it's still a game for, it's still a game for Gould. That's such a great way of saying the behavior is consistent with him, but he is applying it to areas we do not want. We need to readjust our schedule, <laughs> our behavior in that situation. Yet at the same time, Bill, you were talking about how Gould made such a good kind of mentor figure for Siegel's character. And it's interesting that Siegel gets in the most trouble and at his lowest point when Gould leaves the film temporarily Mm -hmm. and he's very rudderless then in this gambling world yeah that's right he becomes both the guide and the tempting devil at once that temptation and friendship that gould has to offer just draws in with the momentum that siegel's character has been showing all the way throughout to lead to this whole sequence at the end, which I frankly found just transcendent. As, as you had said, Brad, that it is, we've seen so many gambling scenes, but Altman does this miraculous trick at the end that he gives us exactly the answer we were never expecting to see out of a gambling film. Mm-hmm. The stakes are so high. Siegel has mortgaged his house. And you get this rush because he could just lose everything at this game. And then he wins. But then he just keeps winning. He plays another game. He keeps winning that. And he keeps winning and he just keeps winning. And Siegel then just has staring at a, t- at a table which shows all of his money. And he just deflates in front of our eyes. And makes some statement... Like, akin to like, you know, I no, I, I have to go home. When he gets to that line about needing to go home, Charlie responds with, oh, yeah, where the fuck do you live? What does that line mean to you? Well, I think from Charlie's point of view, he viewed Siegel as his 
brother in gambling at this point. Their bond was so close, and for him, his impression was that this gambling world has become Siegel's life. Since for Gould, there's no life outside of it, the same has to be true for Siegel. But Siegel has other concerns, and Gould's character just cannot understand that. So when he asks, where the fuck do you live? It's like, you're supposed to live here. Yes. This is home. Any place you might be going is not important compared to what's going on right here. Yeah, and in that context, right, Gould has just seen Siegel live out Gould's fantasy. Right? <laughs> the, the iconic triumphant ending that perhaps Gould's character has been waiting for all of his life, he's seen it happen in front of his eyes. And the most horrible thing for him, maybe, is not that it didn't happen to him, but it happened to his friend, because he, he does seem to like that his friend won. And, he's and he gets to, be, to see a piece of it. Yeah, well, that's, of course, that's no small concern, for sure. Yeah, and so while he does feel happy for his friend, what he can't stand, what Elliot Gould's psychology can't stand is the idea that suddenly this world that is the only world that he finds value in just doesn't matter, that, that Siegel ultimately cares about something else, and the gambling was a substitute. And I think that's something that is amazingly profound in California Split. The tragedy is that Siegel gets what he thought he was dreaming of, only to realize that was just a very poor substitute for something else that he had wanted all along. It's like realizing you had a rosebud 30 years later. (laughs) (laughs) And that's also ties in really great with the American dream. Just the idea of, oh, you can make it. You can have fame and fortune and the sense of easy riches and infinite possibilities that is shown and we're given such a thrill ride in the end of California Split is just given this astounding twist by being successful. (laughs) (laughs) I think by that irony taps into a mother load of a sentiment that is very prevalent in this country and puts it under a gigantic magnifying glass at the end of California Split, which I just think is magnificent. Economy's depressed, not me, my spirit's high as it can be. And you may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. It don't worry me. And when you want to talk about statements about America and what America's all about, few things in movies, I would say, have come close to trying to answer that kind of gigantic question than Robert Altman's next film, Nashville, in 1975. His magnum opus features an ensemble of 25 characters, almost all with some connection to the Nashville music scene or the independent presidential campaign of Hal Philip Walker. The stories and the characters 
unfold and connect in surprising ways as country music legends, struggling musicians, and campaign operatives populate this intersection of politics and celebrity. Pauline Kale called Nashville an orgy for movie lovers. And I think that very much sums up my feelings about Nashville. I have never seen anything on screen so generous as far as what it provides. It's large, not only in its length, not only in the cast, but in what it's trying to do. And it's one of these films like 2001 or Citizen Kane where every single moment the screen is filled with something deliberate. The soundtrack is something that's exactly what he's wanting you to hear at that very moment. So you have all these characters with their own vignettes. And they're pretty much, without exception, masterful on their own. But then as the film goes on and you realize the largeness of the themes that Altman is presenting to us, and you see how these vignettes mix and match with each other, what you have is something that I think is so rare and has become my favorite film, a film I return to again and again and again. You're so right about the abundance of things in Nashville. You see in episodic television nowadays, they say that we're a bit having a renaissance where these sprawling shows that have all these different cast members, but here you're getting the game of American Thrones. <laughs> in American music form. Right. So many competing motivations and interests and different levels of ethics, interest, value, and questions on authenticity for different meanings just get put into this massive melting pot. And I think the strategy of this innovation of all these characters, no leads, an ensemble, is to make the characters not just about themselves. Nashville is not about the characters. It's not about, about the city of Nashville. It's Altman's statement on America in 1975. It will be only one year until the big bicentennial celebrations. People are thinking about the state of America and as we discuss Nashville, as you watch Nashville, I think it's really helpful to look at what each character is symbolizing. In the same way, I think one of the traps that people uh, can fall into with Nashville, and I find there are, there are kind of two types of people who dislike the film. That are people who really, really love country music and really, really hate country music. Because the people who love country music will rightly point out that what we're hearing, and we have a lot of musical numbers in the film that inform the film, but they're not authentic country. Most of them are written by California singer-songwriter types of soft rock music of the early 70s. 
it's not the real thing. But it is too real for people who absolutely hate country because they're like, well, why am I listening to all this country music? <laughs> but here's the thing is it's not about country music. The songs, and this is just another wonderful innovation, the songs are mostly written by the singers who end up singing them. And the lyrics inform what's going on with their characters and inform how the story is moving forward. So when the movie takes its break for its musical numbers, it's not really taking a break at all. The music is now moving the plot forward. I think if you were to take the place name of Nashville and put the letter G in front of it, you will peg a large aspect of what the real place of what this movie is. Gnashing, these things getting mashed together, <laughs> all these different uh, motivations and interests, and it's the place where all this coalesces. In other words, the American experiment. And one of these clashing motivations is the nature of authenticity. I completely understand the people who like country music saying these are not country singers and they're doing an approximation. I can understand that level. I would suggest, though, to move just one level to the side because Nashville is about examining that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, Brad, that you, how you pointed out that these are things that the performers and actors wrote themselves, and they sang that themselves as well. So on one level, is it not authentic country is... Shouldn't that fall by the wayside when it is, in fact, that person singing their own words? Who gets to decide what authentic means? I think that's one of the things that this movie is exploring. Such a gamble he took in having the actors be songwriters and for it to actually have worked. This probably is the best Altman film of the 70s and maybe of the entire career. It's You could make that argument. And I, I think about why it is. To some extent, I think it's the fact that he pulled it off on an epic scale. It never feels ponderous or overweighted by the, the length of it. I, I don't think. I, I think that it actually somehow manages to stay moving and interesting for nearly three hours, and that's its own kind of miracle. It's also, I mean, the songs have to be good. That's the risk with musicals is that the songs also can't lose you. I mean, this is the first musical in a career that is... Got a lot of musical numbers, but this is the first out-and-out -out musical film. When I think about his other films from this period, there's like either a, a um, like a sardonic mocking quality to some of them, or there's a uh, a poetic, atmospheric like obscurity to some of them. And there's a little bit of mockery here, but I think it's surprising how sincere the music is treated in it. Like even the Henry Gibson character, Hamilton, his song is kind of initially kind of poked fun at because it's so stuffy compared to the gospel choir that Lily Tomlin fronts. But at the same time, he's not a villain. Like you, I think you're set for him to be like a Nixonian kind of blowhard, but he holds it together in the tragic climax of the film in a way that is surprising. Like, I, I don't want to necessarily like, evoke Renoir, but like it has the, um, like there are no villains really to this. Like everybody has got their reasons. <laughs> and I think that's right. another thing that's really nice about it is that there's so many likable, distinct characters in it. It isn't a, uh, there's no ciphers in it. Like everybody has depth. Bill, to your point, 
it does really approach kind of the rules of the game kind of approach towards people, doesn't it? Yeah. Not just in terms of appreciating these characters for the complexities, but it gives a sense of empathy and feeling and appreciation for all these people and their situation, which is a step forward from, I think, anything that Altman has done up to this point, especially with such a large ensemble. But it's interesting to see how much everything Altman's done up to this point leads us to this point. It's almost like this is the film he's been preparing for all along. And it announces itself right at the beginning. The opening credits of of the film are fascinating because they double as a way to help us watch the film, to know just how much attention we're going to have to pay because we have the names of the cast of all 25 characters on screen. We have pictures of record albums playing. We have snippets of songs that we're going to hear throughout the movie. And we have an announcer announcing the cast of the movie all in what seems like a chaotic fashion. But if you watch it again, you see really how tightly organized and edited these opening credits are. And it's announcing to us that even before we start the movie, we're going to have to look at every single character and give them their due and listen very carefully to things that are muttered under people's breaths and are off to the side and may not seem the obvious thing to take our focus. It starts off by showing an ironic statement about how this the announcer is breathlessly running through all these things <laughs> as fast as possible for the next commercial needs to get piped in. <laughs> and, and then for just a sense of gleeful, mischievous fun that Altman brings to it, you have the opening scene with Haven Hamilton singing his uh, patriotic anthem, yep. 200 years. He's really laying on what uh, you talked about, authenticity, lay, laying it on so thick that there is no authenticity there. I pray my sons won't go to war, but if they must, they must. I share our country's motto, and in God I place my trust. We may have had our ups and downs, our times of trials and fears, but we must be doing something right to last. And he ends that with him berating one of the members of the band, who's actually uh, played by Richard Baskin, who is the musical director, and saying, you don't belong in Nashville. Quick cut to a sign that says, welcome to Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) As it seems like almost everyone in the ensemble arrives. If you want to overthink it, a little cool immigrant-like note, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also how Altman's Nashville, let's put it that way, is a place of transition and arrival for so many people. Which is very specific in the scene at the airport where Barbara Jean's plane arrives. Barbara Jean is the Loretta Lynn-ish country superstar, the top of the country music heap. And, and just this scene and the ending, pretty much all our characters are present. And Altman's doing a few tricky things. He's dividing our characters 
based on their level of success in their field to their proximity to Barbara Jean. Mm. So the farther away the characters are from Barbara Jean, the more they have to struggle to get to the top of the entertainment industry that's so important to everybody. And then Barbara Jean herself comes out and she is played by Ronnie Blakely in an astounding performance by someone who is pretty much not an actor. She made her career as a singer, but the level of vulnerability she provides to this character and the level at which, at least for me, I came to adore this character, not just because of the moving way that she sings, but in the way she's portrayed, the authenticity is there in the way it's not there for uh, Henry Gibson's character. It calls to mind a title of a great helicopter song called Disposable Heroes, because Altman's been exploring this notion of fame and celebrity and notoriety and how much the people who are the focus of said celebrity are different than the icons that everybody wants them to be. Mm -hmm something that Cary Grant said. Everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Hell, I want to be Cary Grant. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great contrast between how vulnerable and and weak and frail she is. And yet this is this supernova of celebrity, which so many characters are gravitating uh, around. And what brings them there? It's this, it is this authenticity too, but there's this kind of nougat all around it that's turned it in a way it's perverted it right that's moved into something different i think it's interesting to look at that in the context of how mccabe from mccabe and mrs miller has has these outward notions of what it means to be a hero and how those are subverted and perverted in that film how both brewster mcleod and Carradine's character in thieves like us attain some notoriety that they aren't exactly fully aware of as well And also this idea of the contrast between emptiness and a frailty versus the trappings of success is kind of the ending journey of what Siegel's done at the end of California Split as well. It's such an interesting contrast to look at that as she makes her appearance in Nashville. So like we said, we're, we're introduced to a lot of characters in very short order. One of our most sympathetic is Lily Tomlin's character, who we see contrasted also to Henry Gibson as she's uh, the only white member of a black gospel group being recorded in the same studio. Watching her is Opal from the BBC. One of the funniest parts of the film is her complete and utter cluelessness, crassness, the very first thing she does is make some racist remark about the gospel group. And then when she's interviewing somebody and they talk about a family tragedy, she makes it all about herself. And she brings this level of pomposity 
to the film that becomes self-referential. So at one point, she's wandering through a junkyard of school buses talking about the meaning of the color yellow and that how yellow is a, is a color to watch out for. And we're laughing at her because of this. But, but wait a minute. The film itself is utilizing the color yellow as a warning. Anytime you see the color yellow, it's a portent of something bad to come. It's playing with its own pomposity there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you had mentioned earlier about the, the connective tissue in these films, and Altman had said that her character was the connective tissue in Nashville, which mm. I have to think about how you've d- t- discussed that notion in the earlier films. That is that is interesting because I had uh, I had considered another aspect of the film more the connective cue, which is the Hal Philip Walker campaign. This presidential campaign is going on throughout all this, and this independent candidate is going to come to town for a big rally. But his handlers are setting the town up for this. And so everywhere you go, you see this uh, white van with Hal Philip Walker's name on it and his slogan, New Roots for the Nation. (laughs) And there's a loudspeaker talking about his positions, which are all the really banal stuff like we should have a different national anthem and uh, things that aren't really issue oriented, but are meant to capture the imagination nonetheless. Yeah. With and a p- populist. Yeah. Right. Pop. Uh, good, good point. Yeah. Populist message. And part of the improvisational nature of the film is Altman had a bunch of extras basically become the Hal Philip Walker campaign and print out buttons and bumper stickers and all kinds of campaign material. And then he told them to invade the film at various points without him even knowing. So they'll be in the middle of a scene and all of a sudden this campaign worker will be in the background holding a sign. (laughs) And, And it's just like this omnipresent campaign at first seems like a totally separate element, but as the themes weave together you'll see that that's as much a key to the film as the entertainment industry. Mm, the treatment on politics, the political sphere, is so fascinating on here. On one level, you return to like McCabe's idea that there's business and powerful interests are moving their way in. On the media level, it gives us a sense of confinement, even in such a vast movie in scope and, uh, and timing terms that there's no escaping mm-hmm. <laughs> the minions of this political movement. <laughs> it also shows how on a celebrity level, on a fame level, on an attention level, how absolutely withered it is. Because it's not engaging on TV or even necessarily radio. That's some old school Frank Capra stuff right. about having some van on a loudspeaker. Who the, how the hell is going to get your message that way? I mean, even people in the 70s are like, what the hell? This is a 1940s media dispersal technology. Well, it did they work. might as well have newsies passing this pamphlets around. You it know? did work for the Blues Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Talk about trafficking authenticity there, huh? <laughs> but... It's interesting how absolutely inadequate it is, the politics towards capturing the attention of us as we're watching, yet still being a presence. I think it's not a coincidence that the candidate is never actually seen. But we do see his henchmen 
played really brilliantly by Michael Murphy named Triplet because he's not just two-faced, he's (laughs) (laughs) three-faced. This guy's a piece of work because he's trying to get the, the biggest stars to play the campaign rally and he'll stop at nothing. He's blackmailing, he's kissing ass, and then in some of the best scenes are when he's kissing somebody's ass and then that person walks away and then you hear him make some kind of snide, sarcastic comment about him to the the very next moment. (laughs) (laughs) And he brings in this hapless local played by Ned Beatty who also happens to be the husband of the Lily Tomlin character. And part of the fundraising for the campaign is to do a strip tease for the high rollers. And so they recruit this waitress named Suleen Gay, the worst singer in the film, <laughs> except she doesn't know it. She's promised this big shot at opening for Barbara Jean if she strips at this fundraiser and... She's such a insecure and uh, in such desperate states that she agrees to it. The scene where she does strip is the most unerotic and really one of the saddest scenes I've seen. You really absolutely feel for every moment of embarrassment that she's going through. Yeah, I mean, that scene almost, in a way, reminds me a little bit of the Hot Lips humiliation scene. There's nothing erotic about it. Like, it's something very sad and embarrassing. There's no titillating quality to it. That's a really interesting contrast. I find that it's such an advancement here for a number of ways. It's not done for titillation in MASH, but it is done for fun and entertainment. It's like, haha, this person had such an uppity attitude, and now look at how she gets knocked down. But in Nashville, we really feel for her on the one side, but then on the other side, she is so driven by her need to just be famous that it's overridden her basic sense of human dignity. I think we're really made aware of that fact. But Altman is also not ignoring the exploitation angle here. That's right. And the culpability of the the two men who have put this together. Yeah, I mean, in Nashville, Suleen Gay, she embodies every singer that's tried to get by on sex appeal without having the talent. Like, she's a flirt. Like, she sings wink-wink kind of suggestive songs. I don't think her character is meant to be clueless about the erotic content of her performance. It's just that the tables are turned on her in a very humiliating and tragic way that it becomes a lot more grueling in Nashville. Like it's a more it's a more mature film in the way that it treats this. Suling Gay is somebody that could become a star for the wrong reasons and the film kind of punishes her in a way for that. Hmm. Yeah, but it's a very interesting and complex look. Quite amazing if we really think about it, because her tragedy is not that she exploits her sex appeal to be famous. It's that she doesn't get to do that. It's that other people get to have the control of her ability to exploit herself. That's a really fascinating Mm -hmm. uh, outlook. It's just one of the many ways that Altman doesn't just put people at like at, at left turns to have people behave in unexpected ways, but that almost all of the unexpected ways that the, that he makes the characters behave lend to deeper insights into 
their characters. Like, Keith Carradine's musical Lothario is a perfect case in point. Yes, he's Tom from a, I guess, Peter, Paul, and Mary-esque folk group. The the other two members of his trio are married, and he is cheating with uh, Mary from the trio. But that doesn't stop him from cheating with uh, every other woman in the film. But there's only one who he cares about, who is Lily Tomlin's character. I think this leads to one of the most fascinating arcs of the entire film and two sequences that are genius. The first of which involves the song that won this movie an Oscar. It was the Keith Carradine penned number, I'm Easy. Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing. If you won't take the things you make me want to give. Never care too much for games And this one's driving me insane You're not half as free to wander as you claim But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Give the word, I'll play your game As though that's how it ought to be Cause I'm easy very much could be applied to Tom. What Alpin does here is because he's already slept with a number of women and Lily Tomlin has finally agreed to meet with him. So she's going to watch his show. As he's singing, I'm easy. The camera scans the audience and focuses on these various women, Shelley Duvall's LA Joan, Opal from the BBC, Mary from the trio, and they all think that he's singing to them, every one of them, until they realize he's looking somewhere else. The camera focuses in in on Lily Tomlin, and you see the others realize that Tom's affections are somewhere else, and this very much upsets them. And Lily Tomlin has this expression on her face where she is touched but also embarrassed. When we talk about Altman's genius as a visualist, this is the scene I go to when I think of, oh my God, look at what that camera is doing. The fact that it won an Oscar is partly the quality of the song and partly the incredible moment that is featured in the film. Like, I think it's hard once you've seen the film to not think of how it's presented and all those women believing that they are the object of uh, his affection at that time. I mean, that's the first, even before I saw the film, that's the scene that was ascribed to me by my mother who had seen it. Like, as that was what she remembered about Nashville was that moment. Then that leads to the scene where he uh, actually does sleep with Lily Tomlin. And after they're done, she's still married and has no intention of leaving her family, including two young deaf children. And so there's a touching scene where she kind of tries to teach Tom a little bit of sign language. And Tom is touched. And he thinks this could lead to a real affair probably for the the first of all his many conquests he actually has something invested but lily tomlin may have been curious and may have wanted to get involved but she's not about to be taken in by this guy and so when she leaves he does the cruelest thing he could think of 
which is to call another lover long distance in front of her and flirt with her on the phone in a way that he thinks can hurt Lily Tomlin, but she is not that invested. And then as soon as she leaves, he hangs up. (laughs) Yeah. What a great arc. I mean, what does it say about how, about the nature of obsession and the nature of expression of obsession? I mean, it's so cool how music is used as a vehicle to go and transport these feelings about what one person wants from another. And how cool is the contrast that Lily Tomlin both has such a dedication to the gospel choir and that she helps expression for her deaf children. Right. I love that aspect. So, so nicely done. At at about the halfway point, we get a montage of music sang in churches as we've ended one day and begun another. We follow different characters in different churches. But the most affecting moment of that is when you cut to Barbara Jean, who is in the hospital. She's been having nervous breakdowns. And we've been hearing all about what an amazing singer and what an amazing star she is, but we haven't actually heard her sing yet. So we hear her sing in this small hospital church for the first time. It is such an, packs such an emotional wallop because of the combination of the way it's edited and the actual singing performance from Ronnie Blakely. I did say earlier that there weren't really any villains, but I guess Tom, and to a lesser extent, the uh, Michael Murphy character, they are kind of like villains, but they're not, they're not unspeakable. I mean, I guess the thing with the Carradine character is the one moment that he starts to let his guard down and he's rebuffed and that he just further hardens, you wonder if that's the origins of his behavior in the first place, that he's got this sensitive side as a songwriter, but is it just a baited hook to get women? Or is it a case where his callous behavior comes from real pain? The fact that we see him hurt in the one moment that he is unguarded might be the, all the origin story that you need with him. Right. Well, I think definitely. he's too too complicated to be a villain. He's somebody who does terrible things and treats people badly. But that scene just unveils such a hurtful psychology that brings another level. Now, Michael Murphy, on the other hand, (laughs) he's just a piece of work. (laughs) Yeah, he is. But it's a even though I think the movie does real good dividends by contrasting his behavior with Beatty, because Beatty's character is kind of the wannabe small town version of what (laughs) Murphy's doing. But Murphy is thinking like, so many more steps ahead than what Beatty's doing. It's really effective to see how both people behave uh, rather differently to the events that happen over the course of the film. And I don't even think Murphy is a villain. At least he's not. I don't find him presented in the film as a villain so much as a tool in a literal sense. He's really good at being duplicitous, mm-hmm. and he's brought in, he's airlifted in to help smooth things over. Yeah, and yeah, he he does his job. He succeeds in everything that he's meant to until the finale of the film. Yeah, you can argue that, in fact, he is the greatest success of any career trajectory of any character in Nashville. Now, mind you, it's a kind of bitter success, but I think in terms of objectively achieving the goal he wanted, 
I'm going works to give you I'm going to give you another candidate for that role and that is Barbara Harris's character. Barbara Harris we meet in a traffic jam that is another set pieces that just about all the cast end up in. She is kind of being kept down by her abusive husband. She wants to be a singer and we hear her trying to kind of get out from under his thumb. We can't quite tell how good a singer she is, but we know that she desperately wants to sing. A lot of her role through the movie is underplayed because it's basically her trying to hide from her husband. Yeah. But when we get to the ending of the film, her role is redefined. Exactly. And note that as an effective contrast to the would-wanna-be singer Mm -hmm. to strip. Yes, yes. Mm. So I think that does bring us to this amazing final sequence that brings everyone together, and it is a glorious piece of filmmaking. The Nashville Parthenon is the location for what is going to be both a concert featuring Barbara Jean and a political rally featuring Hal Philip Walker. If you look at the film a few times, you'll notice there is a lot of red, white, and blue Mm -hmm. in the film. There's a lot of patriotic imagery. But once we get to this final scene, all that imagery is focused in on a gigantic American flag flying on the Parthenon. When we get to Barbara Jean's last song it's a song called my idaho home that for me is the most beautiful song of the film and lyrically it's about family old-fashioned values down home life on the country but again in an authentic way that's the opposite of haven hamilton's version of those kind of songs So it's really two competing ideas of what America is. Are we spoiling? I was just about to give the warning. (laughs) Okay. If we're spoiling the ending of Nashville now, that leads me to ask you, so Barbara Jean is assassinated. And this is the thing that Polly Platt, the production designer and former partner of Peter Bogdanovich, turned down Nashville over. She felt like this ending did not fit with the rest of the film and was making some point that wasn't earned. What do you think Altman is getting at by having Barbara Jean be the target of a gunman? Is it him commenting on celebrity and fame, or is it something about America, what she represents in her... Uh... There's there's two things where that, com- where that comes in, at least for me. But I'll admit up front, it is pretty interesting how... Someone who has the most purest expression, who comes from the most heartfelt place, that that person is going to be a target. I think there's a lot of ways to look at it. And 
Polly Platt's impression on things isn't necessarily invalid by any means. Well, I would disagree with the idea that it's not earned because the entire film is set up for some kind of apocalypse. We've been talking about the meaning of Barbara Jean's vulnerability, and part of that is in that she is the one that will be taken away. Also, in the sense that she is the one who represents real American values, more so than a lot of the fakery that surrounds her. So her being assassinated, again, everybody is symbolic. They're not just their own characters. Haven Hamilton, after she's shot, says, this is Nashville. This isn't Dallas. This is Nashville. Calling back to the Kennedy assassination, which is also referred to in a monologue by Haven's wife, who talks about how deeply the Kennedy brothers uh, affected her and how much they meant for her and how they were taken away. What was the replacement at the time of the shooting of this film was Richard Nixon. Mm. I would beg to differ with you, Brad, slightly when you go and say that she was singing about good old-fashioned American values. I would differ to in this way. The reaction to her getting shot is American values. One of the statements that Altman's trying to make is that she is a purity of heart and spirit. That's, that's not what this country's deal is. <laughs> Our country's <laughs> deal is making the best of things, going out and putting on the show, the show must go on, and whoever can grab the stage at this moment, no matter how horrible the moment is, is going to be the one who triumphs. That's the real American dream. Well, you know, I, I, obviously we, we don't want to get, get veered off into politics, and, and how you read this scene probably depends on where you are politically. But since you bring it up, I do strongly feel that there is kind of an ideal of America, and then what we see often, including in our current times, that are really attacks on that ideal. And so I think what you're describing is the perversion of America, not America in its ideal. Mm. And I think that's what Barbara Jean represents, is that ideal. Hmm. I think the American ideal, maybe today, and maybe it's my personal view of it, is more expressed by Lily, Lily Tomlin's character because she is open to mm -hmm. all these different groups. She is accepting and she wants to go and communicate and wants people to be together. She takes affection when it's offered but does not treat it as like a vulnerability to be exploited or as some way that someone can take advantage of her. So I think she represents that kind of sense of American acceptance at its best. Barbara Jean, by contrast, is a little bit more of an abstracted kind of ideal of purity. That's really what I mean, Okay, is that, that she represents American ideals. Now, you're talking about with Lily Tomlin, kind of American good works and how to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, mm -hmm. I guess the distinction that we have is that I am a little more reluctant to attain those, the virtues, the purity that she expresses, and think of that as something that's 
American or uniquely American. At least that's a well. Well, yeah. I mean, and to say it's uniquely American would be silly. Obviously, there are universal values, but Nashville is a film that's so steeped in Americana, we can't ignore that frame that Altman's putting on it. But I want to bring Haven Hamilton back into it Mm -hmm. because we've spent the film kind of laughing at him and mocking his uh, rooster-like crowing. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely put. Yes. But when Barbara Jean is shot, it's Haven Hamilton that, oh, and he, by the way, he's shot in the arm as well. He's Mm -hmm. wounded. It's Haven Hamilton that, at the risks to his own life, calms the crowd and tries to somehow get us past this horror that we're witnessing. So I think it's no accident that this character that we've made assumptions about is now making himself more complex than we originally thought. Yeah, he's defiant in the in the face of horror. He's not just mm-hmm. trying to calm the crowd. He's like let's show them what we're made of. We're you know this is Nashville. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he hands the microphone off to Barbara Harris's character. Again, Barbara Harris has been basically singing to herself most of the film. She has not been performing. She's now in front of the world at this moment, and she sings the song, It Don't Worry Me. It's a song written by Keith Carradine that was a hit for his group. And you hear snippets of It Don't Worry Me throughout the film. Ah. At certain points uh, when they see him, because that's his big hit, the audience starts to just sing It Don't Worry Me to get him to sing it. But instead, it's Albuquerque's moment. And her singing It Don't Worry Me does two things. One is it's going to make her instantly a gigantic star. And with Barbara Jean having been assassinated, it could bring her unwittingly to the top of this mountain everybody's been climbing. But also, the lyrics of the song itself is an indictment on, and yes, you could say it's an indictment on the crowd, on Nashville, but this is really Altman's indictment of America. This is Altman saying that in this moment of tragedy where the rubber hits the road, where everything we have is is at risk because of acts like this, the people will respond with apathy and just chant over and over again, it don't worry me. It You might say that I'm not free, but it don't worry me. Real quick on that, because as Tom's song, the little insight you get into his political ideas in the film are him saying he doesn't believe in voting for presidents. He taunts police saying, you know, kill anyone today, right? Taunting a soldier like he's he's the nihilistic side of the protest generation. And mm-hmm. in his hands, those lyrics, they're a little snide. I mean, there's the ignorance is bliss message. It's judging the country. But in Barbara Harris's rendering of it, it's focusing on the bliss and focusing on and not not worrying in a scene of horror. It's using this very cynical song from this very cynical man to move the crowd because they're not listening to those words. They're just hearing the emotion in her voice. And so she's transcending Tom's cynicism. That's a great point, Bill. It also ties in with how in the musical context, 
it can have different meanings for different people, different meanings for individuals as a group. The contrast with how the song's words express the prickliness of Carradine's hidden vulnerability, but yet it's a vehicle for Barbara Harris's need to try and get relief and to be part of the uh, to be a part of a community. That's amazingly fascinating to me. And it also shows the ultimate American song might be born in the USA, <laughs> but not Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA. Ronald Reagan's born in the USA. In other words, the version of the song, which is not following the very bitter cynicism of the lyrics, but is the rousing anthem mm-hmm. for America's just great and we will bear any burden by ignoring it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really that's, good, oh, a good analogy. Yeah, that? that's a really good analogy. I like that. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bitter on my point. And I think... Well, I, think, while I, I, mean, but it, but I mean, what else does that don't worry me mean? And on top of everything else, right, it's a great explicit commentary of the I'm okay, you're okay movement that was pervading the 70s as a weird sort of warping of the hippie movement, right? It's taking that sentiment, Mm -hmm. which is so prevalent, and then showing how both inadequate and yet inevitable that kind of reaction is going to be in the face of a real horrific incident. Think about how Barbara Jean sings about her Idaho home. The movie, in a way, is responding to her by going, whose house do you fucking think it is? (laughs) (laughs) If we then pull back and kind of look at the movie as a whole, we've been talking about various characters, various story strands, but just imagine trying to turn the story of 25 people at various places in one town into a state of the nation on where America is in 1975. That is an almost unbelievable accomplishment. Exactly. As pure filmmaking in terms of Keeping the energy, the pacing, doling out the humor and the drama and giving in surprises and leading to like multifaceted angles of exploration um, both visually and dramatically through almost every corner of what we're shown in this epic length film. It's triumphant on so many ways and takes Altman's themes on community in America, authenticity, and gives it the most fullest expression, maybe the possibly one of the most fullest expressions that movies have ever done up to this point. So I like it. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) It don't. And it's really interesting in how epic Nashville makes its statement because it was a subject that Altman wanted to return to in his following film, 
Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or alternatively, Sitting Bull's history lesson. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's funny that most filmmakers don't even get to make one bicentennial film, and yet we have two <laughs> different takes on Altman's feeling about America at the dawn of the bicentennial. This is being the much more sour take on it, even than whatever cynical reading you could have of, of the end of Nashville. I mean, we talk about McCabe and Mrs. Miller being the anti-Western, but this really feels like the real revisionist Western as far as it's an attack on how Westerns have portrayed Native Americans negatively, it, which yeah. was a standard trope of the genre. It's about how victors in war can invent popular history that whitewashes their treacherous behavior. Like, it's really going for the throat. McCabe is its own adventure in the way that it's told, but it's not breaking with traditions quite as aggressively as, as this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the difference between taking the ideas of the Westerns and running with them, and Buffalo Bill is a Western which wants to make clear to those watching that if you ever liked Westerns, you are a rotten, lousy idiot, <laughs> and you should stop doing that immediately. <laughs> and that's the sensibility that I get out of watching Buffalo Bill, to the most part, as well as the the celebrity aspect of Nashville. is It's just kind of focused on the idea of presentation and fakery, to almost the exclusion of anything else aside from, again, Westerns suck. What are you doing watching the Western? <laughs> I think that it's an interesting film. It's got some compelling things to say. There's things about it that I find quite moving, but it's also a little bit preachy in a way that I don't really always care for. I mean, as far as something to return back to, it's a very bitter film. And this actually caused some professional problems for him because Dino De Laurentiis had produced it and he had asked Altman to give him some action in this film and uh, he was so distressed with the results that he fired Altman off of production of uh, Dr. Rose Ragtime, which uh, ah. Milos, Milos Forman wound up taking over, but one of the great what-ifs of the Altman filmography is what he would have done with Ragtime. Right, because if there was ever a film where a giant ensemble cast would be appropriate, it would be that. Yeah. Right. But instead, he went on in 1977 to direct Three Women. which takes place in a small desert town in California. Shelley Duval is Millie, who puts on a party girl facade, but has difficulty fitting in. When Sissy Spacek's childlike Pinky gets a job at the same health spa, Millie takes her under her wing and the two move in together. There is a third woman, Willie, who is pregnant and paints disturbing creatures in murals. An unexpected accident will change how all three view each other and themselves. Well, I'm just going to say this may be my favorite Altman of all the ones we're going to discuss today. I enjoy a lot out of this film, and I think a large part of the reason why is because it is aiming to do mind-bending things, which is something that I enjoy. And unlike, I would say, for images... The mind-bending 
is working on a couple of conceptual ideas and has one hell of a hook that draws me in. The hook for me is this kind of almost Zen poem about celebrity, which is this. What does it mean for someone to be not a star fucker, but a nobody fucker? (laughs) what, What does it mean for someone to be so possessive and to so want the essence of someone who doesn't have any personality in the first place. <laughs> That's such an interesting concept that this film explores for me. And it's handled in a very surrealistic way. Altman has said that he wrote the film based on a dream he had. I would kind of amend that to say that he may have had that dream shortly after watching Ingmar Bergman's Persona. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. But actually, unlike Persona, and also, in my, in my opinion, unlike Images, there is such rich characterizations going on from Sissy Spacek and, and Shelley Duvall that we can follow the strangeness of the hallucinatory sequences because these, these characters are so complete and set up in a way that we understand what makes them tick. Well, see, that's really interesting because I, I agree with you, but kind of for the opposite reason. I completely agree with you in the sense that Sissy Spacek, Shelley Duvall, and Janice Rule as Willie, they are themselves. They are completely themselves. But what each person is is a different version of nothing. (laughs) Millie is just one of the best evocations of unjustified confidence (laughs) in that the things you are saying and doing are fascinating to any other human being on the face of the earth. It's just a wonder to behold. (laughs) She's like a flip on Opal in Nashville. I mean, it's just her cluelessness in terms of social interaction. But she's also like, what if McCabe or Marlowe stopped talking to themselves and just started droning on at everyone else around them, whether or not they were interested in hearing it? It's the female version of that loner protagonist. There are days when this is my favorite Altman film also. I mean, it's very hard for me to pick. I mean, today it's California Split. Tomorrow it could be Nashville. A week from now, you, I, you'd ask me, I'd say three women. I mean, this one mm-hmm. of all of the Altman films was like the f- one that felt the most like a personal discovery when I saw it, because it was a film that I'd read about in books, but it never had a home video release until much later. And I, so I was obsessing about it based on still images for years before I ever actually saw it. And then I found a bootleg of it at a convention and... No one else I knew had it or knew it. I mean, it was a very personal, private thing, and it's a perfect film to be a private film. I mentioned Peckinpah earlier, and I feel like this is comparable to Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia in a way, in that it's oh, in that it's huh. a um, it was not received well at the time. I mean, it, better than Alfredo Garcia, which was hated, but I mean, it was not a box office success. I mean, even Pauline Kael fell out of love a little bit with Altman at this point, but it's kind of become a major cult classic, and I think of serious interest to lovers of dark and dreamy curios 
that extends beyond the cult surrounding the director's other work. I think this feels so singular. I feel like the people that like the films of David Lynch, for example. When I ran a video store in North Carolina, and this was around 2001, and I used to tell people that were thinking about renting it from me, it's like the Fleetwood Mac rumors version of Mulholland Drive. Oh, <laughs> because, awesome. it, because it has that, that, that hazy, vaguely witchy, California soft rock feel, but taking that same notion of identity and and twinning and doppelgangers and this nightmare relationship between two women. Mm -hmm. This builds and improves upon the things he's exploring in images, but it's less of a gothic horror. It makes it more like a recognizably American take on it. And again, like images, Altman takes a possessory credit. This again is like something that comes from his head, which I find so interesting that when left to his own devices, he was coming up with these strange... Bergman-esque horrors. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I also always find it funny every time I watch it for a PG film. (laughs) One of the first images you see is very prominent male nudity in the paintings that the Willie character is painting throughout the pool. Like it feels like very adult, even more so than some of the R-rated films. Well, this is not for kids, for sure. (laughs) And I'm actually a little shocked at that rating, having seen the film. But I do want to go into those paintings because they fill a number of functions. First of all, it's kind of the return of the connective cues that Altman's earlier films had, where we uh, often cut to these paintings as ways to dramatically break up the film. But you're very right. I mean, the the actual images that the painter Bodie Wind provides are, to say the least, disturbing. They're variations on human and, and monster form with, as you said, giant phalluses. And the imagery, first of all, does comment on what's happening in the film because there are a lot of sexual politics involved. But also, it sets the mood you really have these creepy atmospherics that are informed by these paintings. It's no coincidence that one of the places we see this painting is on the inside of an empty swimming pool. It's uh, maybe a little bit too on the nose, (laughs) but the very idea is about, in this landscape, people's submerged feelings and impulses are laid out in the open to bake and uh, warp on the uh, hot sun of what might be Altman's most apocalyptic movie, even more than uh, Frozen Wasteland that is coming up. (laughs) And I think, Bill, your point on Alfredo Garcia is really cool on that because I think in both films are apocalyptic and maybe that also partly explains their cult appeal in that Generally, audiences don't want to have the feeling that everything's destroyed and everything's laid to waste. But if you're in a cult frame of mind, exploring that can be really fascinating. And I think both are kind of doing it, but I like how they're both doing it in two different ways. And in Garcia, Peckinpah has been so trafficking in violence and masculinity that what are you going to do? Is if a guy talking to a, talking to a head for most of the movie... <laughs> But what does that say about what's been his impulses throughout his career, right? And in in a similar way on Altman, it's a post-apocalyptic of the worlds of some future point past the California of California split or, uh, or the worlds on Nashville or Buffalo Bill. It reminds me of a title of a really great movie that came out this year by Lynn Ramsey called You Were Never Really Here. 
that's a feeling that mm-hmm. the environment and the characters is coming. Are they really there? <laughs> Which leads us into spoiler territory, because yes. about halfway through the film, Shelley Duvall does have a conquest, uh, even though most people don't even want to sit <laughs> by her at lunch. This kind of aging wannabe cowboy stuntman type character. And that kind of sets Sissy Spacek's character off, who is very childlike, very naive. She's soft-spoken, whereas Telly Duval's character is loud. She goes through some kind of uh, internal crisis and jumps off the balcony into the pool and is, is in a coma for a while. When she comes out of the coma... Strangely, her personality seems changed. She doesn't recognize her own parents. She views Shelley Duvall's character in a much different way and seems to be taking on some of Shelley Duvall's personality. This sets Shelley Duvall off to the point where she starts to resemble Pinky a little more. She becomes more docile. Right, right. She doesn't, her personality doesn't switch, but it changes because she can't respond to Pinky in the way she usually is used to. Yeah, she she retreats because, yeah, she's, she becomes easily dominated because she has no self-esteem. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And her self, the idea of where does her lack of self-worth come from? You can look at that as a negative way in terms of the idea that she was such a blowhard all the way through because she was always desperate for human communication that she would just think if she runs her mouth off long enough, someone will respond in a positive way. (laughs) But also, it could be a manifestation of her guilt of putting Pinky into such a state to commit the suicide attempt. And while she does get by her docility, is aspects of, of Pinky beforehand... Pinky kind of transcends to attain levels of allure, levels mm-hmm. of mystery that Millie has never possessed. Millie cannot possess mystery, in fact, because as soon as something occurs to her, she will say it. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you were talking about how this may be one of the best David Lynch movies that David Lynch never made. Yes. How much of a Mulholland Drive vibe is it? Between Pinky before and Pinky after versus Naomi Watts before and Naomi Watts after. And I always wondered if Lynch ever saw this because he's someone that has never really claimed to be much of a cinephile. But Sissy Spacek, I think, would have been also chipping in on the making of Eraserhead around this same period. So he would have had reason to see this just because it was a film that his friend was in. Lynch and Altman both also draw from Bergman, which Lynch does acknowledge as an influence. But it is the kind of film that it feels like an organic strangeness in both cases, not an affectation from someone that has grown up with David Lynch movies and trying to you know emulate weirdness that, for its own sake. That's true. And I think it actually transcends the comparisons with Persona. Oh, I think so too. Because for however great Persona is... When I see Persona, I feel like it is an intellectual and a thoughtful exercise. It's also claustrophobic, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And Three Women is not quite as claustrophobic, but it definitely is a lot more of like that feeling of dislocation, of loss, of the way of like 
how your identity can be found lacking and where would you try to pick up to draw from the world and how inadequate it is if the world itself is so desolate. Those things are deeply felt, I think, in in Three Women in a way that Persona intellectualizes more. You, uh, that's, that's my Right, per- Persona is more of an original in terms of having brought something to the screen that nobody had ever seen before. But Altman can't help but have this kind of humanistic point of view. So his take on this is not just going to be Bergman, it's also going to be Altman. And so you talk about the claustrophobia, it reminded me a little bit, a little bit about how we were discussing the long goodbye and mm. how the sunniness of Los Angeles in that movie was oppressive. And I think that the desert location and everything being white and, and sunny and uh, yes. and even the blues of the spa mm-hmm. are kind of all meant to disturb. What did you say about Opal's insightful statement about yellow? Yeah. Oh, God, Lord, is it so There's pervasive out here. <laughs> <laughs> but, Mil- but Al, you mentioned before about the pool imagery and how mm-hmm. the uh, in submerging. And I was thinking about how the first images we see in the story is, is the hot tub pools that they're working at, staffed entirely by young women caring for older bodies. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think like how that ties into the empty pools full of the murals that are outside the apartment complex where they live. I mean, do you see any symbolic parallel between pools? Oh, definitely. I'm sure it's not an accident that that you started this way, as does we brought up the idea of romantic pairings that had an age difference, which, by the way, also manifests itself here. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a coincidence that we start with old people and end with a birth. That birth sequence is preceded by a very unsettling for Millie scene of witnessing Pinky's parents making love. She spies them like a little girl and sees this older couple making love in her bedroom. I feel like this is echoed in what when Pinky is observing the childbirth sequence, like the same, like they're both reduced to children watching something adult happening and mm-hmm. not being able to I- engage with it. I think you're onto something, right. Bill. And that's, that's made richer by the fact that these women seem to attain different levels of maturity throughout the film. They almost age and de-age, depending mm-hmm. on the uh, point of the film at which we're at. Yeah. I'm going to throw a, an idea that is just really, really crazy. But I just want to throw it around by you guys. You know how a lot of the horror from The Exorcist comes from the idea that of a generation who finds that the younger generation is doing things that are unexplicable, strange and weird and disturbing to them, and they don't know how to quote-unquote fix things, right? That's kind of one of the undercurrents of that. Mm -hmm. I think three women might be doing that from the kids' perspective. Hmm. The people in the pool, they are people who have lived their lives. They have a way of connecting and loving and expressing an accommodation that the new generation just can't do. And they try, and they try, in Millie's case, but they fail miserably to try to approximate. That's why it's so weird, part of the reason why it's so weird, to see the older couple doing the lovemaking. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think you can interpret three women in multiple ways, but a lot of it is about this feeling of dislocation Mm -hmm. you have places like hotel rooms and 
dude ranches that are half empty and quote-unquote motorbike races who are really going in circles and never ending up anywhere. You have really evocative murals that then get shot and destroyed. And in a really fun touch, when you go to the dude ranch, even the giant rocks are completely fake and Pinky's able to lift one (laughs) completely over her head and stick her own head in a noose. (laughs) And and there's a super fun detail where every time, every single time Millie gets in her car, her overflowing yellow dress is always hanging off the car door. (laughs) And when they pick up the parents... They come from Texas, so they say, but they make a comment as they travel by this arid, desolate landscape, and one of them says, oh, this looks just like Texas. In other words, one place is just, looks just like another. One location is just like another. Um, things that you think are real are, are not, and things that you think have value get destroyed or, or found to be empty. And that feeling of... Where on earth can someone get a personality in here <laughs> is a feeling the movie, I think, brings along all the way through. I think that brings to other potential interpretations, especially as we get to the very end of the film, mm-hmm. because things are reorganized for the last scene. After the accident, the dynamic between the women has changed. But after the childbirth, it changes once again. At this point, the the women even look differently. Sissy Spacek has reverted back into a childlike character. And Janice Rule has become kind of almost a grandmotherly figurehead. And Shelley Duvall seems to almost be the mother of Sissy Spacek. I can't imagine that Willie, the Janice Rule character, which her name is Millie with an upside down M. Right. I can't imagine that's coincidental. So I always try to think about what that relationship is. In the film proper, before the ending, she's a mute character for the most, but we never see her talking. And you think that it's either a case where she's trying to preserve mystery or she really can't speak. But if you rewatch it, knowing that Edgar is kind of a cheating type, then you can actually interpret it as she's pissed that uh, young single women keep coming around her dude ranch to tempt away her jerky husband while she's pregnant. And you mentioned her name, and Pinky's actual name is Mildred. I.E. Millie. I.E. Millie. So there is a theory that I think makes some sense that is it possible that all three women are the same woman? At different stages in their life. It's an interesting thing to think about when one third of the people we're talking about is in a coma. I don't know how the one woman, really one woman theory happens. I mean, is that Pinky's comatose thought process? Any attempt to make that theory make logical sense is is not the purpose of the theory. I mean, Mm -hmm. the idea is that the entire thing is such a surrealistic collage that to make sense of it, it has to be with dream logic, not with real logic. Right. I don't want us to go room 237ing on anything like this here. (laughs) (laughs) But I do seriously think that the theories, the multiple theories you can get out of three women, all come from a really powerful pay dirt. I think there's a really powerful statement lurking underneath that ties into the idea of the personalities that the three women do, and more importantly, don't possess. I'd be really curious as to hear what 
women would think or the impression that women might get out of three women because something that comes across to me is how the female characters in the movie find themselves constrained by the society that is there around them. In other words, there's certain roles where women are allowed to behave and they can only define themselves or find these roles to appropriate according to this very restrictive structure. Like To give one example, what's the common trope of women in films? A common trope is that women are either the Madonna or the whore, right? The Madonna whore complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pinky is kind of both sides of things, right? A naive innocent on the one side, and then she becomes this figure of allure. Her Her hair is swept back in this perfect California style, and she's hanging around by poolside to an extent that Millie never was able to do. And the moment where people switch roles as a result of a birth. And so Millie, her life changes because whereas before she was just an independent lady who is perfectly content to tell everyone about her life, no matter how little interest anyone shows in return. But when she finds she has a responsibility to take care of Pinky, and the guilt and responsibility drive her to be severely limited in her behavior. So it's like she's had to take on the mother role. She's always taking on that role as far as like, get your head out of that noose and, you know, like judging her table manners and clean up after yourself. You've alienated our company. Like she's always scolding her like a parent with an overactive child. Like she's always having to reprimand her. That's true, Bill. And then it also ties into her role as a caretaker in the beginning. But there's something yeah. else different about the ending, which is all the male characters are removed. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what does that say? Maybe that's the real them, but they don't have to worry about the world putting them in their own boxes. I do really see how these different roles, like in a similar way, Janice Rule's Willie character, she can't express through communication because the communication's been closed off by her cheating loud of a husband. So that's why she doesn't get a voice except through her paintings. Her paintings. Exactly. All these paintings have to be submerged Mm -hmm. or put to the side because they can't be fully addressed or put out into the open unless to be shot at, notably. Ah, Yeah. (laughs) So that idea of like, what is a part of ourselves and what can get expressed and Also, where can we draw from to help define ourselves is something that this film's actually exploring. Again, it takes the weirdness, and just like Mulholland Drive, just like Lost Highway and so many of Lynch, it ties into all these great, like the bugs in Blue Velvet, that subterranean current of darkness that I feel is intrinsic towards uh, a lot of stuff within ourselves, I think. So after, I guess, when doing some kind of press during the shoot of Three Women, a reporter asked him, what are you going to be shooting next? And he flippantly said, oh, we're going to be shooting a wedding, (laughs) you know, just being a smart ass. But then this started uh, spinning in his mind a little bit. And so he does another ensemble comedy, kind of like Nashville 
times two. It's an even larger ensemble. And it's in a way, it, it feels like a forerunner to a more successful film, Gosford Park, but that same kind of mixing of classes and mixing of people all in one setting. I think after the experimentation of Three Women, it's Altman returning to safer territory. And a rare example of Altman doing what's expected of him. It's kind of uh, not reinventing the wheel for him, but it, it's a more pleasant diversion than where he goes next. <laughs> right. The... <laughs> if you ever heard a commentary about how likable that movie was, he definitely decided to make a reaction shot in his next film, Quintet in 1979. a Paul Newman movie. It's also the name of a favorite board game of the inhabitants of this post-apocalyptic frozen dystopia. When Newman impersonates one of the players, he soon finds out that the stakes of Quintet are life and death. Well, again, I will say, if you experiment, you can fail. (laughs) And I have never seen an Altman movie fail as badly as this one. It doesn't even have the things that I really enjoyed about images being just the the pure filmmaking of it. It almost looks like a contemplative Mr. Freeze movie (laughs) uh, because it's basic. (laughs) I actually would like to see that. (laughs) It would be ice to see. No, no, I mean, that, that, that's the best thing I can say about Quintet is that it's kind of cool to see, like, everything covered in ice. But that's really it. It's, it's about this game, and we're not entirely sure about where the board game ends and where the real-life murder game begins. Everyone seems bored to be in this. Paul Newman is sleepwalking. The film just feels so incomplete and so like it's reaching for something it has no way to get to. Mm, so you think it's reaching, huh? <laughs> that's that's an interesting way of phrasing well, again, it. Again, he didn't make it. <laughs> but right, but, but right. It, nobody makes a movie this weird no, on, for on autopilot. Mm, I was at a party once where... Someone at the party was mentioning he was working on the film crew with Robert Altman when Altman was in Chicago making his film The Company involving the Jeffrey Ballet. And he described that Altman's filmmaking technique at that point, mind you, Mm -hmm. involved shooting for two hours a day and then retiring to his trailer to smoke pot for the rest of the day. When I see Quintet, I not only (laughs) imagine that... Altman has gone to his trailer to smoke pot for 20 hours, but it looks like he filmed it inside there as well. (laughs) This is by far his most ugliest film, even before he decides it's a great idea to take some Vaseline and smear it on the corners so you can't focus on anything as if the very cinema screen is about to be frosted over. In almost every single scene, this blurriness is happening around the frame. 
Mm-hmm. What a strange decision. <laughs> right. I see why technically you justify it, but the look of it is terrible, and it doesn't help that if you focus on the exact center, you get to see what looks like a warehouse that's hosting an art exhibit <laughs> with a couple of Ouija boards being placed to simulate the quintet game, which, like everything else in the movie, comes across as the scene from... I'm going to get you, sucker. when two characters try to fight and they go, wait a minute, I don't know any kung fu, do you? No, do you? Well, you want to wing it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then they start slapping each other. <laughs> That's the filmmaking of, of Quintet. It is half-assed, which is not something you want in a frozen environment. Yeah, this is one that, unlike images, I can't defend. I always want to find my way in on this one because I love when he works in the grim genre film mode. I like his way of blending the European art film with the genre film. And this is like a Western as much as it's like a science fiction film. Like, it's a really unusual concept. It seems awfully plot and concept heavy for a director with little to no interest in plots at this point of his storytelling career. It feels like you're trying to get all of this information that the director that is adept at giving you those kind of details might be able to tell this story in a way that makes a little more sense. But Altman is not that filmmaker. Quintet, it's a noble failure, but it is a failure. After Quintet was not well received by critics or the public, the next thing he made was A Perfect Couple, a rare chance for Paul Dooley, who's a uh, reliable character actor. He's in a number of Altman films besides this. A Wedding was the first thing he saw, and he would later pop up in Popeye. It's a romantic comedy. It's Paul Dooley and Marta Heflin uh, as the co-lead. And it's a little bit of an older man, younger woman story, but it's maybe one of the most conventional films in the Altman uh, canon. It's like the Altman take on a romantic comedy, but he mostly plays it pretty straight. It has a lot of musical performances in it because the Marta Heflin character is involved in like a California soft rock band. Actually, the musical aspects of this film date it more than any other film from his 70s period. It's a likable film. I, it's undeservedly obscure, especially following Quintet. It's like Nashville compared to what it's following up. Like a wedding, it's a nice surprise if you're digging for gems among the less heralded films. He followed this with a film that really didn't get released at all, Health, in 1980. This is a uh, political satire about an election for the president of a health food convention. Lauren Bacall and Glenda Jackson play dueling candidates for this presidency. And it's a political satire that, like, Bacall's character is based on Eisenhower, while Glenda Jackson's is based on Adelaide Stevenson, which is a very esoteric (laughs) way of doing a comedy, especially for 1980. Altman is still making the offbeat 70s-style ensemble comedies in the vein of Nashville and a Wedding at a time when it's the Spielberg-Lucas era is already here. If you like Altman's ensemble comedies, it's perfectly enjoyable. It's never come out on home video. I don't think it's streaming anywhere legally. Um, apparently, Ronald Reagan really hated it, So, but because uh, he had seen it at Camp David, but uh, did not care for it. But Anything that gets an image of Reagan angrily shaking his fist at a film is something worth being on the lookout for. <laughs> Although yeah. I also think it's a little unjust that Reagan got to see a film that we can't see. <laughs> so true. <laughs> it's an enjoyable little lark of a film. It's not a great film, but it's more fun than something like Quintet. Like, it, it definitely... 
deserves to have a proper release one day. Yes, and his next film, you can see anytime you'd like. Very, <laughs> very available. 1980s Popeye. And I've got a lot of muscle, and I only got one eye, and I never heard nobody's, and I'll never tell a lie. Top to me bottoms, from the bottoms to me top. That's the way it is, till the days that I drop. What am I? What am I? I am what I am. Stars Robin Williams as the title Sailor Man, and Shelley Duvall as his lady love, Olive Oil. In this musical version, Popeye arrives in Sweet Haven looking for his long-lost pappy. Finding romance, and a baby, with olive oil, he soon runs afoul of her other suitor, the large town baron, Bluto. How would a Hollywood producer put it? Well, time to make this delightful romp about a mumbling, conflicted guy searching for his lost fatherhood in a desolate environment who becomes an unlikely savior of the people. You know, for kids. I imagine that producer doing a tremendous amount of cocaine before <laughs> coming uh, to that conclusion. Because even though, and I'll tell you, I actually do like this movie, the actual decision making that got to the point where Robert Altman is chosen to direct Popeye is psychotic. <laughs> that, mm. that, that If these producers had known his body of work, how could this happen? Having said that... Watching it as an adult, I was pleasantly surprised, but that wasn't the case when I first saw it in the theater when I was 10, the target audience for the film, growing up on those Max Fleischer Popeye cartoons that were running in syndication and expecting a big screen version of that. It is not a good Popeye movie. However, it's a very good Robert Altman film. Because it takes far more from Robert Altman's idiosyncratic style than it does from those Popeye cartoons. Yeah. In retrospect, when we look back on the films we'd already talked about about Altman, you can actually find a lot of elements to make their way. Right down to, say, how Bluto gets kind of an uncanny resemblance to the main hired mercenary from McCabe and Mrs. Miller. <laughs> I had said at the beginning that this was the film that I had seen so many times as a, as a child, and going back to it years later as a, uh, as a cinephile fan of Altman's other films, I was struck at how much it resonated with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I think even just the very handmade quality of the town, that uh, Sweet Haven, it feels like a cousin to it. And then, you know, you have another private mumbling loner wandering into this universe. <laughs> it it yeah. is like McCabe for kids. Although the mumbling actually reminded me a little more of uh, Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's, oh, yeah, that's that's funny. And while I was looking for more details about this movie, apparently at the two thirds mark, there is a scene that takes place in a gambling environment. And there is a lady who looks like Mrs. Uh, Miller, who's <laughs> admiring a vase in the same way Mrs. Miller and McCabe and Mrs. Miller was admiring that object to be the clover to closing credits. There are 100% more prostitutes in this film than in just about any other film geared towards kids that you're going to find. <laughs> now, if, if, now, if Wimpy had stayed gambling all day with Sweet Pea and had concluded at the end, it don't mean a fucking thing, does it? You know, that would have been that would have been the link that I would be looking for. But uh, unfortunately, they don't go that route with the gambling aspects in Popeye. But, Although it but, does have Bluto turn yellow. Yep. But if you're looking <laughs> yeah. for if you're looking for more weirdness, 
making this a musical. Right. How about that? Of people a, who can't sing. A musical where no one can sing, and your lead character's main attribute is that he mumbles all of his lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's doing double duty because he's not just like taking a Vietnam level flamethrower to the idea of making a delightful children's movie, but he's also doing that to the musical as well. These songs are by Harry Nielsen. And they are a weird motley bunch of songs, which begins with this epic hymn to the town itself, where it's uh, like, Sweet Haven, God will love us. And it's like, yeah. what is? what are you going for here? You know what? Now that you say God will love us, yeah. it's, oh my God, it's the... Uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, like, set depiction of the Presbyterian town for Mrs. Miller. Well, well, yes. (laughs) Everything's at odd angles and stuff. And that set may be the most impressive part of the film. It really is something to to behold, and it was really built and is still there as a tourist attraction in Malta. Malta, okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) America gets the Parthenon in Nashville... Malta gets Sweet Haven from <laughs> Fleischer Studios. I don't know if they got a fair trade. <laughs> well, Paul Thomas Anderson got an olive oil song for Punch Drunk Love. He, he replayed uh, He Needs Me at a key point in that film. Apparently wow. when uh, he screened Punch Drunk Love for Robert Altman and when that song came up, Altman uh, started moving his hands like a conductor. Uh, <laughs> you know, so nice. he was quite charmed by the reappropriation of the olive oil number for Punch Drunk Love. <laughs> this movie approaches to me the Flash Gordon zone, the zone inhabited by films to me like Battlefield Earth and Congo. Stuff that's Not good, but bad enough to be quite awesome. (laughs) I love the idea that you had a movie ostensibly aimed at kids, which had Shelley Duvall singing a song for why she's marrying him called He's Large. I I can't believe that a children's movie would have the line, olive oil sounds like a lubricant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I can totally see a producer going, okay, Altman, you have five minutes. Start running. (laughs) This film is something that I can just appreciate by being an irony layer cake. It's like, for one thing, it is, in almost every respect, the movie is just an embarrassment akin to, like, seeing a 50-year-old man cosplay as Han Solo, in that same sense of like, oh, God, the Star Wars and the, and Jaws, they're real blockbusters. I got to make me a blockbuster. So in every aspect of that, it's such a miserable failure, except for the very things that make an Altman movie an Altman movie. It may have been in everyone else's interest for this to be a giant hit, but that, that was not Robert Altman's agenda. Mm. It is never Robert Altman's agenda. His agenda is always to make the exact movie he wants to make. And you could make, I think, a list of good qualities of Popeye and bad qualities of Popeye, and you'll have a lot to put on both sides of the list. For instance, you mentioned some of the cast, and it is eerie how well the film does at having all the characters visually emulate their cartoon counterparts. Well... That's another irony in that they don't quite do that for the cartoons because the cartoons basically is a three-person gig. Uh, Oh, there's Wimpy, too. Wimpy shows up periodically. However, 
as an evocation of the original Seagar comic strip. Mm -hmm. The fidelity is quite fascinating because that was the original comic strip. Popeye was just a minor character. He was part of an ensemble back then. And Sweet Haven was much more of a presence as a, a destitute environment. So I don't know if that was Ultimate's intent of being, I've got to do Popeye right. But he actually went and had the, a lot of the spirit of the original no, comics. And he has said that, that he was more influenced by the comics okay. than by the film shorts. But I, I did want to mention, there's a few scenes of melancholy in the film that kind of stand out. And, mm -hmm. and there's one that, that, that's lovely where he's missing his long lost father. And so he's talking to this uh, picture that we assume is of him. And then he, he turns picture around and we reveal that it's just a piece of paper saying me, Papa. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to just mention that the octopus battle at the end is very close to Bride of the Monster territory uh, when yes. trying to make the inanimate tentacles become a threat when, <laughs> yes, as a child, I found absolutely terrifying because it, it all seemed quite realistic. But looking at it now, it's as an adult, I do see the, a little <laughs> bit of Ed Wood creeping into the uh, into the movie at that point. Altman's interest in faithfully depicting that act. It's obvious that that was uh, had less of a fascination for him, that, that he put less of his energy to it. But then again, considering the movies we've talked about and how well he is in depicting sudden ultra-brutal violence, maybe it's better for all involved <laughs> that that's a part of Altman's filmography that did not make itself manifest in Popeye. Right, but to, to keep the level of perversity up, he does present us with a Popeye who does not like spinach. Which is basically Popeye's one trait. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I remember the frustration at his lack of ability to quote unquote deliver the goods. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it doesn't rewrite Popeye the way he rewrites Marlowe in Long Goodbye, but it is but it is it is definitely along the same lines of revisionism. Right, right. <laughs> Deconstructing something that was barely constructed in the first place. He's the filmmaking version of Pinky from Three Women on there, <laughs> which I also bring up to say, for those of you who want to just explore Popeye, try seeing it after the birth scene in Three Women, and then you'll look at Olive Oil's affection towards Sweet Pea in a whole new light. <laughs> this film is kind of like his Dune, in that it's perceived to be this big flop I bet more people have seen this flop than any other Altman film, including The Player, including Gosford Park, maybe more than MASH at this point, because it lives on television, it lives on video, and it became a child's, you know, a children's film perennial. It did make some money. It made its money back and a little bit of a profit, but considering the expectations for the film, it was the uh, studio's consolation prize after losing the rights to Annie. And so they wanted another musical uh, based on a comic strip. So the combination of Popeye not failing but underperforming and also what happened with Heaven's Gate is often cited in tandem as one of the factors that killed New Hollywood and that let the producers come back in and squash some of the independence that directors enjoyed in the 70s. The biggest irony, actually, with Bill was Bill is what you said, in that this film is the film that most people on an aggregate basis may know the name Robert Altman from. 
like just by coincidence at work the other day, my non-cinephile co-workers were talking about something and Popeye came up in conversation and they all knew it. It's something that people grew up with in the 80s. It's not like a film that cinephiles ever talk about, except to talk about like how it was this anomaly in the career of Robert Altman, this odd, perceived to be a flop Hollywood film that kind of drove him into the next phase of his career. It is the closing of the door of the new Hollywood era, Robert Altman. But at the same time, it's him trying and failing to engage with the new environment. Where Health really does feel like the last film that's part of that 70s thing. Popeye, it's, he's just out of step with that Simpson, Bruckheimer, Spielberg studio era of the 80s. It's a miracle that he survived it. Cool. Glad you were able to point that out, Bill. And thanks so much for joining us on this exploration onto this filmmaker's mammoth body of work. And if you're wondering when we're going to talk about movies like The Player, Shortcuts, and Gosford Park, that will be in Robert Altman Redux Part 2. Redux Part Ducks. Part Ducks, (laughs) which will happen at an indeterminate time in the future. (laughs) Yes. Now, Bill, in addition to your supporting characters podcast on the Now Playing Network, Mm -hmm. I've heard that you now have started on another podcast. Can you describe that as well as letting people know where else people can read, hear, or um, experience you? Okay, so I do Supporting Characters, which is my main show, and that's on the Now Playing Network, and that's for Directors Club listeners that haven't heard it. I mean, that's where you can hear, I do episodes with Patrick and Jim from the old cast of characters from this show, as well as with uh, Sam Deegan and Kat Ellinger, who do the images commentary on the Arrow video. That's my main show. And then I have a new show called From the Neighborhood, which is interviews with people that worked on the film Blue Velvet. So it's still not on iTunes, but you can get it at the Now Playing Network site. I don't know how many episodes that's going to be. I mean, it's a finite number of people I can access from that show, but it's going to be something I'm hoping to do on a bi-monthly basis. Next is the release of The Last House and Left Blu-ray from Arrow Video in the United States. I do the commentary for that with Amanda Reyes. And then I also just did a, uh, an episode of the Projection Booth podcast on Jerry Schatzberg's new Hollywood film, Scarecrow, where we talk a little bit about Altman at that conversation. But that's also going to be out pretty soon. That's what I've been working on lately. I can't wait to check those out. Yeah, and clearly we can never get enough Altman in terms of as a topic out for discussion. Now, we'd like for you guys listening in to pass along what your impressions are about Altman or your favorite films or moments from Altman's films or commentary about how we did on our exploration of his work. And to do that, you can give us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple locations across the net on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook Directors Club Podcast, Twitter DC Podcast. We are on Spotify at Directors Club Podcast. And all of our previous episodes, including several great ones with Bill, can be found on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Bill, thanks again for joining us on this part of the first half of Robert Altman's work. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys.
Now, what do I think makes Beatty Beatty is that he has these manne idle good looks and this ambition, but his ambition leads him astray and he finds himself in events out of his league. Oh, you've seen Town and Country? <laughs> uh, are you one of the 50 who have in a theater? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I take your point. That was, yeah. <laughs>